Your journey continues on the enigmatic episode 100 spectacular of So Many Insane Plays. All right, let's move on to a note, another noteworthy card, Black Vice. Black Vice is a continuous artifact, costs one mana. If opponent has more than four cards in hand during upkeep, Black Vice does one damage to opponent for each card in excess of four. This is obviously paired later on with the rack, which yep. is the mirror image effect in antiquities for cards for, for this for is less the first three cards. All card. Yeah, yeah, or, or fewer than three. Yeah, you're right. And the Richard Thomas art is the beginning of a bit of a trope with respect to the stuffy doll. The the character in this black vice getting squished is <laughs> is retroactively referred to as the stuffy doll in the time spiral block, <laughs> yeah. which is great. <laughs> it yeah. is great. Yeah, and this card is noteworthy for a couple of other reasons. One is uh, we've already referenced it in a couple of ways. You drew a parallel to this between this and uh, Ankh of Mishra when you talked about efficient artifact threats that deal damage over the course of a game. Right, this card has elicited a groan from many a player over the years when it's played in (laughs) one or more copies on the first turn right (laughs) and in addition to just being generally hard to avoid in that impossible i would say to avoid in that kind of context it's also been functional in a number of combo or combo adjacent decks over the years right because you can put a bunch of copies in play and then make your opponent draw cards thereby damaging them heavily with cards like time twister and wheel and ancestral and It's equivalent in the form of the rack, which we don't need to review here, has had a similar effect in a number of reasons. We already alluded to the, the rack balance deck. So what does Black Vice evoke in you, Steve? Well, the first thing that I just want to mention before I answer that question is that that when you think about the base set of magic, I think a lot of people think simplistically that, it's, that the main route to victory is just creature kill, right? Mm. That you just attack with creatures. But in fact, there is an, there are enormous amounts of direct damage in alpha, I mean, not just yeah. burn and direct damage, but also there indirect. Are several damage. artifacts in different yeah. ways. Dingus egg and, and Dingus egg, uh, Anka Mishra, Black Vise, among others. Yeah. Um, and Black Vise, I think, is kind of, in my opinion, one of the f- one of the first major win conditions. Well, a number of things. Number one is it's an anti-control card. You know, so the, yeah. you, if you can't stand an opponent who's just sitting there. Like building up a huge hand, Black Vise has been your answer. Um, Black Vise, to your point, you, you alluded to this, but it was a win condition in the net, early Nether Void decks, so the very first prison decks. Mm-hmm. But Kevin, it was also the win condition in the Prosperity deck. Oh, yeah, right. Just like, yep. that's all you had to do was just build up a whole bunch. And I played the alpha version of that in the Wizards tournament. I had two Black Vises as my win condition. And uh-huh. the goal was to Ancestral Recall my opponent six times and then drop both vises <laughs> and then they die in their upkeep. Um, yeah. But um, here's the main thing I wanted to point out, Kevin. Do you know which card is the first card to be restricted three times? <laughs> or is it Black Vise? <laughs> yeah, it's Black Vise. So Black Vise was restricted uh, in... It, I, I'm, I, I can pull up my... I could pull up my article to figure out the specific time. But roughly speaking, it was restricted in early 90s... Ah, gee, it was restricted because of type 2 and then they uncoupled the type 2 and type 1 lists and they unrestricted it and then they re-restricted it to deal with prosperity and then it was unrestricted finally around um, I forget 2000 so it was the first card to be unrestricted three times I think wow yeah that's cool would, 
Yeah. Um, and it was restricted. I can't remember if it was restricted twice or three times. I could look up my history of the vintage Ben and restricted list to give you the specific number. But um, it was one of those cards that, you know, you almost got whiplash from how many times it had changed position <laughs> in type right. one. Um, right. And part of the reason it was restricted for so long is because of the multiples effect, as you just pointed out, right? Yeah. And, and Ivory Tower was also restricted. And so they kind of worked at, you know, cross purposes um, for a while. Um, I Is Black Lies still restricted in Legacy? Or did they finally take it off? Oh, it's- And I mean- it's just totally legal in Legacy now. Okay. You can play it as a four of if it you want. It was banned for a very long time in yeah. Legacy. Um, but but in contemporary old school, the main thing that it's used with is with the Atog deck, right? For the same reason as Anka Mishra. You can deploy it early, get a lot of damage. In the late game, it just feeds the Atog. So it's yeah. super synergistic. Um, but there are other things you can do with it. In addition to, uh, you know... Prosperity. You can. There are other ways to build your opponent's hand real big, right? You can um, Hercules recall an opponent and black Vi- get him with black vies or other things. So black vies is one of those cards that has like a lot of interesting tactical and strategic options. It's not just like I'm going to play it on turn one. You can do things with it to win, like prosperity. Last point though, Kevin. There was a weird moment in the mid 2000s, and I can't peg the years. I want to say 2004. Where for like a, a couple of months they changed the upkeep and draw rule, step rules mm. so that Black Vise and Rack, I can't remember which way they moved, but one of them got slightly better and one of them got slightly, slightly worse. So that the draw step happened before, I, God, I can't remember. I can't remember how that worked, but it was like they screwed up the timing for like three months so that like, I think it must have been with, I, I'm sorry, my memory's just too vague on this. But they somehow changed the draw the draw rule. And, and oh, Black Vise was errated. I think Black Vise and, and the Rack were given errata to work in the draw step for a moment. A hot moment. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah, it's noteworthy. The <laughs> the printings of Black Vise have gone through a few different phases, right? Because obviously the alpha and beta versions are not specific enough about the beginning of upkeep versus, say, end of upkeep or any other phase, right? Those concepts didn't even exist then. Yeah. But there were other variations that just referred to during their upkeep, right? And then those triggers were all retconned to happen at a particular time, most of them at the beginning of the upkeep. But there's a noteworthy version from Foreign Black Border that says at the end of target opponent's upkeep, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then there are digital versions that go back to being at the beginning. So the card itself reflects some of that ambiguity and shift over time just across its different versions in terms of when in the beginning of the turn it happens. The It's noteworthy, too, that there hasn't been, even though there are multiple printings since then, there hasn't been a legality change in terms of printing for Black Vice since 4th edition. It's been reprinted twice since then, because there's a From the Vault version. Yeah, well, there's some digital versions, there's a From the Vault version, and then there's an Invocation version, or it's from uh, Kaladesh Inventions. But the last version of Black Vice in paper that actually was in a booster product that changed its legality was 4th edition. Think about how long ago that was. Jeez, yeah. So Black Vice has not been in a standard format since 4th edition. So I'd have to look in Crystal Keep, in it, and I, that archive is no longer even there. But there was yeah. one point at which, I, I, if I recall correctly, they they changed, they errated Black Vice in, in the rack to work in the draw step. And then at around the same time, they changed the timing of the draw during the draw step 
such that the draw during the draw step, I think, happened before Black Vise resolved, which was extremely weird. And so I think Black Vise actually hit for five at one point if you just had four more. (laughs) That's my recollection. Someone listening to this can remember that that specific weird moment in time because I I just can't peg it. But um, I think it was probably around 2003. Around some point I, around there, maybe 2002, and it didn't happen. I do for remember, very long. yeah, I do remember some time where they monkeyed with the order of operations for things happening during your draw and upkeep, and I can't remember the specifics of it, but I, I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, in and general, though, his- it, well, I just want to say in general, though, this this one mana artifact can do a lot of damage on turn one. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. And also, it started a bit of a historical pattern because, as we just alluded to, the inverse effect of this, which just looks at cards fewer than three in your opponent's hand, the rack, was introduced in Antiquities. And then those two cards formed a dyad that was effectively recapitulated two other times because in Urza's Legacy, we got the Wheel of Torture and the Iron Maiden, which Mm. had the two effects in a similar fashion. The Wheel of Torture says during each of your opponent's upkeeps, Wheel of Torture deals one damage to that player for each card fewer than three, and and vice versa. Those were rewordings of the originals to affect every opponent. Ah. Because it's... uh, And I want to get to that in a second, but then in Nemesis later on, we had the Rackling and the Viceling, which are the same thing in creature forms. uh, Four mana, two, two creatures with those abilities uh, as upkeep. But it's worth noting that the tactic... the semantic ambiguity of the card in alpha, which refers to opponent, right? Yeah. As we've alluded to before, the alpha wording on many cards uh, completely ignores the notion of multiplayer. It assumes you have only one single opponent. Well, subsequent reprintings of various cards that reference your opponents have diverged in terms of whether or not they apply to one person or all your opponents. Some are, yeah. That's right. And the modern interpretation of Black Vice says, as Black Vice enters the battlefield, choose an opponent. Target, yeah. Yeah, so they they um, really codified the fact that this only applies to one of your opponents, which is why the Urza's Legacy versions still exist as a differentiation, because they always apply to all your opponents. Yeah. The evolution of the game, man. I know, I know. We're going to get to our next card, which is the first of a couple. Well, we've already alluded to the Dual Lands, but this is the first of it's a different a form of cycle. Yeah. This is Black Ward, and there's one of every color, of course, for each of the five colors. These are Auras. Uh, for a W, each one, enchant creature, target creature gains protection from black. And as you can imagine, each one of them grants uh, protection of the associated color. So each of the five colors. The <laughs> There's not much to say about these uh, in practice because they're very, <laughs> very weak. Yes. Um, Steve, help me out. Is there <laughs> Is there any application of these wards in old school? Not really. They're uncommon, so they have some value, but they, you know, they're still like, you know, ten to twenty dollar cards, <laughs> which is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> but they're basically unplayable. I mean, the 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 principal issue is number one, it is a cycle of five, as you mentioned. Yeah. Um, in in both old school and in alpha, there's no sideboard. I mean, in in old school there is sideboard rather, and in, in alpha there's no sideboard. Yeah. And it, it's so it's. It's really hard to make make this work. You'd have to figure. You'd have to have a better sense of some combo. There's some combos I'll talk about in a little bit that can justify playing the COP's main deck. I mean, I think here's what here's what I want to say. There's two cycles in this in this set that are very weak. The first is the wards, <laughs> and the second is the laces. 
there are other right. cycles as well. I think that I think in the design of Alpha that color changing laces were probably thought to have a more prominent role. And so the wards would probably have higher mm-hmm. value as a result. Right? Because the laces are rares in each color, which we're going to talk about eventually. And maybe mm-hmm. I can just address some of that now. But you know, the laces change the 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 color of any permanent to any color you want. Depend well to, to of the, the respect- of the color of the lace yeah. of the color of the lace, the respective color. Um, and so I think I think cards like sleight of hand, magical hack, and the laces, and perhaps it, were supposed to have a larger role. And that explains I think the you know why this is such a big cycle in white. I also think that they're limited by the fact that they're in white, right? I mean, they're just not as good as the as the COPs, which can are diffuse in in being able to respond to any any number of targets. Right. So I think they're you know just the like you pointed out earlier on, we we're talking about aspect of wolf that there are a lot of d- darn creature enchantments in alpha. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, this card's w- terrible, but and this I, I don't know, think I don't know this is this is probably not one of the worst ones. Uh, but it's cer- oh, yeah. certainly not the best. <laughs> there certainly is a hierarchy in them. Just just a mirror image of the quality of the creatures and removal in the formats, right? Like yes. uh, the 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 green and blue wards are pretty low on the list naturally because green and blue have the the worst removal in the format. And I'd like to get your read on how these wards relate to the definitions of protection in Alpha, because. <laughs> it's worth noting that if you read an alpha white ward, which we're not on right now, but we'll say it ahead of time. If you read it and interpret it by today's standards, the card doesn't actually function at all. Right. <laughs> right. Um, as such, the cards have received errata. The whole cycle have received errata. And it's interesting that the whole cycle has received errata, which is funny. It's cyclical, I think, but we'll talk about that in a sec. What's your read on the point at which these cards either received errata or the rules changed such that they even worked, especially with respect to White Ward? Well, f- well, let me just start off by saying it's not something that's very relevant because these cards aren't played. So it's Granted. it's not a particularly important question. Uh, <laughs> I know. <laughs> but my sense is that in Alpha League, the the goal generally is to play the cards as written. Um, so, so I think it would be totally nonsensical to have White Ward destroy itself because of Mm -hmm. the ability it grants. Mm -hmm. So therefore, I think you have to create a loophole exception that makes it function. Kind of an implicit (laughs) proviso, right? That it doesn't destroy itself. (laughs) (laughs) Let me... Let me try to... And this is just for fun here, but let me try to get to the answer in a roundabout way. Do you think if you had control magic to your opponent's creature yes. um, in alpha and then your opponent played blue ward on that creature oh, that the control God. magic would fall off? God. Uh, <laughs> and I recognize you might not have a good answer here. I'm just wondering yeah, what your interpretation that's a great is. That's question. Uh, what I'm trying to get yeah. at is, you know what I'm trying to get at is, it was the proviso that protection prevented enchanting or enchant being enchanted part of the alpha concept of protection. So the first thing, yeah, the first thing I would do, and and this is a little bit of a fool's errand, right? But the first thing I would do is I would look (laughs) in um, the alpha rule book and the alpha rule book does talk about protection a little bit. Um, It says, here's what it says. 
A creature with protection from one or more colors cannot be affected by any magic of those colors. For example, a creature with protection from blue cannot be blocked by blue creatures, dealt damage by blue creatures, or enchanted, damaged, or otherwise affected by blue cards. That's incredibly broad. It goes on to say, damage done by such a creature cannot be prevented using blue cards. Note that the creature does not have this ability until it is successfully summoned. So obviously it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't apply in your hand or yeah. whatever. If, for example, you are summoning a creature with protection from blue magic, your rival can still cast blue interrupts that affect the summoning spell. So that's all it says. And, uh, and the alpha rulebook doesn't really have a big FAQ because it had the uh, Warzel's Tale instead. So it's possible that the beta rulebook clarifies this somewhat. Um, well, hold on. The word enchanted was in there. Yes. Very clearly. Yes, but the question... So I assume that if you... If I had, let's say, a juggernaut that had blue ward on it, and you would not be able to target it with control magic. But your question is different. Your question is, what if what if you have my my juggernaut with control magic, and then I cast blue ward on it? I, I don't know. I honestly don't I, know. Well, I, I recognize that it's not definitive, because Alpha has lots of issues, but... In my opinion, the word enchanted is in there, and that's that's pretty unambiguous in my opinion. That yeah, but protection it says it, prohibits enchanting. It's but here's what it says, just to summarize, it says a creature with protection from one more colors cannot be affected by magic of those colors. So that's the first sentence. That, that statement says, is horribly overbroad, obviously. Right. And then the second is for example, a creature with protection from blue cannot be, and then it has a list, and in the list is or enchanted. So the question yeah. is, what is meant by the verb enchanted? Does it mean to cast oh, yeah. an, an enchantment? Yeah. Or does yeah, I it see your mean, point. Yeah. Or does it mean so, to kind of perpetuate the existence of an enchantment? <laughs> yeah. So I'm totally there with you. And so we can't really have a definitive conclusion. However, I would posit that the card White Ward, as it exists in Alpha, is evidence against enchantment causing it to fall off protection causing an enchantment to fall off because yeah. any other interpretation makes the card white ward not function if if richard garfield intended you to have white ward on a creature yeah <laughs> then by definition the protection that it grants can't apply well, to just ongoing enchantments so let me let me convolute this a little bit suppose okay. that you have a uh a blue ward you have a blue ward and you cast a blue ward on your creature you're casting uh-huh. a blue ward on your creature and it interrupts speed you play a, um, I guess we could make a, it... A sleight of hand? Exactly. A sleight of hand <laughs> <laughs> so that the blue ward is now blue, right? Uh, <laughs> the same question comes up, but in a slightly different context, right? Yeah. So, so in yeah. that case, would would the... Resol- would, I mean, you've already kind of targeted, in a sense, targeting is in an alpha, but you've already <laughs> selected the creature for, you know, cat, for targeting yeah. it. Um, does it then, well, then fall off? The or? notion, yeah, the notion of shroud and hexproof; those notions don't exist in alpha no. either. No. But the answer to that question would probably resolve the answer to this one. But I think the answer is just basically unknown. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's up to interpretation it's at this point. It's indeterminate. Yeah. I, I yeah. think. I think though that if you could you could apply the proviso that casting this card to all the wards does not result in it being discarded. You know, and 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 there. I think you have to start from that, yeah. right? Otherwise, the cards would not exist. Right. Or at least and, White Ward would not exist. And you have the same thing, you have the same problem with laces. Like you could potentially lace something, right? So it's like you give something protection from black, um, 
I don't know. You yeah. can probably come up with a scenario where the lace changes the color. That you know, the you. I, I don't know. It becomes even weirder because, like, what if the black <laughs> ward is black? Like, yeah. it, you know, then the you know the creature yeah. protection from the ward itself. I don't know. It's weird. It becomes like the white ward, <laughs> <laughs> but it, the timing so, becomes relevant in that point rather than the identity of the card. So to to just put a pin in this, uh, you know, uh, end of this conversation. The modern text on White Ward. I'm using this oh, one even though we're talking about Black Ward. The modern text is, it's an enchantment aura, enchant creature. Enchanted creature has protection from white. This effect doesn't remove White Ward. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so what that's what that they added? had to do. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I'd have to go I'd have to go back and look. These cards have not been reprinted very much, Thank fortunately. God. <laughs> yeah, I know. The last printing of the wards was in, looks like, 4th edition and... A uh, quick perusal of the printing says that only the fourth edition text has that text on it. So it didn't Got exist it. in ABU through revised, of course, as well as a couple of foreign language printings since then, but fourth edition gained that text. So somewhere between revised and fourth, they realized the error of the rules. The all of ironically, all of the wards now have that language. Even yeah. the green ward says this effect doesn't remove green ward, which I think is an allusion to what you're talking about. Scenario because, I came up with. Yeah. yeah, if you only put it on the white ward, then it would cause the same confusion if you were to change the color of green ward to green. So they just went, went ahead and applied it to each of the wards. I should mention that there is an artifact ward in Antiquities as well that could raise... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so it's hilarious. I do want to draw one other point, and that's just about the art. See, this cycle of wards were all oh, illustrated yeah. by Dan Frazier, and four out of the five of them have the characteristics that we're used to from multiple Dan Frazier arts, which is a subject, which is pretty clearly delineated in a totally abstract background. Oh, like, Black yeah. Ward is cool because it looks like it might it, be a cave painting. It looks like it's etched in stone. It's amazing. Yeah, they, All the wards, I mean... The laces are are I think have inferior art to the wards. The ward arts are are amazing. They're, they're really just, cool. They're just great as pieces of art. Terrible yeah. as magic cards. <laughs> Probably the worst in the set, possibly. Yeah. It's interesting to note that the white one is the only one that actually puts the ward in any kind of real context. Like yeah. it's floating over a plains. Yeah. Obviously. So that's interesting, but uh, the green one is especially bizarre. It's, yeah, Geometric it's, shape with leaves. The white one is just these streaks in the sky, though. So it's like it's like a <laughs> sign in the sky, like a like. A, yeah, it's incredible. It's so interesting. Um, yeah. The the red and the black one are just really superlative, though, in terms of art. I'm um, a big favor of the blue one just because the background is so evocative of his moxen. Yeah, I. It's got this stylized painterly background. Yeah, that that kind of weird swirl that you know that yeah. thing where you just dip the art into the <laughs> yeah that chemical that's right. brew. <laughs> the blue one is a little bit, I think, too abstract for me. It almost, right, but we don't need to critique yeah. that. They're all they're all very interesting artistically. That's right. They have a lot in common, and they're each a little unique. All right, so Steve. We um, it's funny. We've talked about the the rules quirks of Alpha on several examples now, right? But this next one is in a, in a level unto itself. <laughs> <laughs> you remember, and you can give a better history lesson on this one about the the word mystifiers, right? Yes. I want to put a pin in the word mystifiers and let you get back to it in a second. But we're here to talk about Blaze of Glory. It's an instant. It costs W. The Alpha text is target defending creature can and must block all attacking creatures it can legally block for example comma 
A normal non-flying target defender can and must block all normal non-flying attackers at once, but it cannot block any flying attackers. Controller of target defender may distribute damage among attackers as desired. Play before defense is chosen. (sighs) (laughs) This card is so bizarre. Blaze of glory. Um, I want to read the Oracle text at some point. I want to talk about this hilarious art. Yes. But where to even begin, Steve? The, there's a whole subcategory of cards that were removed from Unlimited because they were just too confusing right. and too weird rules-wise, and players did not get them, and this is on that list. Yes. Can you talk about that notion and when it came about and, and well, how they were categorized? So every time... Every time a new set came out and, and cards were added or removed, but starting at the very beginning, Wizards offered an explanation, an actual mm-hmm. like list and explanation. And when Revise came out, there was a, an article that was put in the Duelist. It might have been one of the, the second issue of the Duelist is my guess. Maybe the first that in which Richard Garfield had written a column explaining each card's reason for being removed. There were, broadly speaking, two major categories. The first was what he called spoilers. The second was what he called mystifiers, which you alluded to. (laughs) (laughs) And spoilers were things like Black Lotus, Ancestral Recall. Cards are just, like, too powerful for game balance. But Mm -hmm. the second was mystifiers, which are cards that just generated enormous amounts of confusion, were hard to understand in the rules. Illusionary Mask is probably the greatest like clearest example of that, but other cards like Word yeah. of Command, Blaze of Glory also stand out. Yeah. And this clearly creates a lot of questions. You know, uh, God, don't even get me started on banding with it. Um, <laughs> I mean, the obvious question, so this this card was never a card even back in the day that saw a lot of play. Just as a very marginal, very marginalized card. Um, yeah. But it does, the, the obvious thing is that there are a lot of interesting interactions that are built into alpha so for example thicket basilisk and lore thicket thicket basilisk and siren's call thicket basilisk and this right so how do all those things work together i honestly don't know (laughs) i I can't remember whether thicket basilisk let me take a look so yeah both cockatrice and thicket basilisk in alpha say that basically anytime they block something those creatures die so blaze of glory is probably pretty good with with Thicket Basilisk mm-hmm. for that re- in Cockatrice for that reason because it doesn't those cards don't actually have to inf- so if you have four attacking creatures and Thicket Basilisk is only was it 2-2 two, two, it do- or 2-4 it doesn't have to deal damage to all of them it's just blocking all of them right. so they're all dead right so it appears to me that this card was intended to it, it can play both offense and defense you can use it for an alpha strike such that your one one, you're, you know, your banalish hero. You play Blaze of Glory, and your opponent has to block their, your banalish hero with all their creatures, and then everything else you're attacking with just gets through. Barring, yes, yes, barring multiple other effects. But and you can use it on defense because on defense you have the similar, the inverse effect. As I play this on my banalish hero, and it just blocks your whole attack, right? Yeah. So I, th- I think it's a cool card in, in the sense of emergent gameplay, just because it can play offense and defense, but. The rules implications, as you said, vis-a-vis banding and those thicket basilisks and trample, trample. just become God. a complete nightmare. Yeah, and and, th- and they're a nightmare not because 
they're difficult to tease out, but because they're actually indeterminate and they need a rules <laughs> official to resolve, yeah. right? The rules themselves aren't are insufficient or inadequate to the task. This card, I just you know, it is interesting on offense and defense, but I've never seen it played either back in the day. I have no memory of it actually being cast, nor do I have any example of it being played in contemporary old school or alpha league. Even it's a rare too. I just note. But yeah, the art yeah. is awesome. <laughs> so Richard Thomas had, in my experience, had a couple of different genres of art throughout his whole opus. One of them was the kind of comic book strong line style that you see in Air Elemental and the Blasts and, a, and several other cards. And another is what this card is like, which is more, it's still kind of comic booky. Yeah, but it's the, flat. It's flat. Yeah, it's two-dimensional, and that's the thing. And the characters are... There's there's lack of depth to it, and there's also a lack of context in this case, but it still have kind of the hard lines. And this one is especially interesting in the flatness because there's obviously a collection of creatures that are being held off by this one subject with the giant axe. And obviously, the, the creatures are layered in the view such as to imply that there's just a high quantity of them. And it also speaks to the function of the card pretty directly, right? This one character is holding off a whole army on defense. And Blaze of Glory obviously speaks to the defensive capability. But the card was developed to allow for the offensive one, too. It's interesting to me that the this is the sort of card that I wouldn't be surprised if its current oracle wording restricted it to being played on your creatures. Interesting. Right? To, to go back to like the, the Relic Bind example, right? Where the... The, the targeting of the thing changes over time. I'm kind of surprised that this one doesn't say target creature you control, but it does. It just says target creature defending player controls, which means you can use it on offense and defense even today. Yeah, that's great. I have never seen this card cast. Neither have I. <laughs> in my whole history of the game, it's which is unusual. I've seen almost, I mean, there's a long list of cards in alpha that I've seen cast, and this is just not on that list. Also, it's noteworthy that uh, it's reserved, of course, and it doesn't really. This is so low value that even the even the unlimited ones are only forty five bucks. No, the but, alpha uh, one is not cheap. It's several hundred at least. Yeah, but that's alpha cards for you, right? And alpha this one's rares. a rare, so yeah. All right, Steve, let's talk about blessing, and it's enchantment aura for WW aura. That's right. Not an alpha, it's not. An alpha, it's enchant creature, of course. And an alpha, it says, and we'll talk about this, it says W colon target creature gains plus one plus one until end of turn. And now, obviously, if you're paying attention, you recognize that that's not how the card works anymore. The enchantment was obviously intended in design, at least, to affect only the creature that it was on. And it's just part of the ongoing sub-theme of auras in alpha and how they were structured because the wards if you'll recall used the language target creature gains blah 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 it's interesting though that the function of a uh otherwise continuous with no activated abilities enchantment like black ward the the meaning of the word target in the text box is yes. contextually different in modern era than it would be for this ability that's activated and could literally be printed this way in if you know with this exact wording today it's, and it would function differently than intended. It's so interesting that one of the first things you focused on was targeting, because that's exactly mm -hmm. what I wanted to talk about with this card. Yeah, we, we glossed. There's one other thing too, but we'll get we'll get to that. Yeah, we glossed over it, but the word target is replete 
in this set. In fact, a number of the cards that we've already <laughs> reviewed, like Animate Artifact says mm-hmm. uh, Target Artifact. Target Artifact, right? yep. Um, the, the wards, as you mentioned, Target Creature. But there is a, if you just look within the four corners of this card, there is a syntactical ambiguity, right? Which is, or a semantic ambiguity, rather, which is, does it mean that only the card that is enchanted can get this boost or any target creature in play? Right? Mm-hmm. Now, if you, if you juxtapose it and look at it next to Blue Ward or Black Ward, which we reviewed, Black Ward yeah. recently reviewed, then it makes it seem like it's just the creature that's enchanted, as, as you're alluding to. But the, the challenge with that, Kevin, is that there's a kind of functional difference, right? Which is that in the case of some of these cards, these are you assume that the target creature is referring to the target that you, that is enchanted, whereas you know in blessing it's really not not clear. So you have to understand text the textual interpretation of the card depends upon contextual comparisons to other <laughs> right white enchantments in this case. Otherwise, it it potentially. So I think it I think if you are a kind of an alpha league player and you mm-hmm. just want to. You want cards to work as the text states. You have a decision to make, right? You can either make it work more interestingly to apply to any creature, or you can try and hew to the textual intent, which is a little bit of a contradiction. <laughs> and then it, you know, just the the enchanted creature. I think, given the spirit of Alpha League, you know, jurisprudence or interpretation is to try and make things more interesting. I kind of like the interpretation where, you know, you can target any creature in play. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But but the, I did that wasn't the point. I the main point I wanted to make was about how targeting is really pervasive in alpha, but used in very different ways, and then not used in other cases. And I was hoping you could speak to that. <laughs> well, yeah, that's my favorite part about this. You're absolutely right. Target is used a lot. And yet still inconsistently. Yes. <laughs> Most of the auras in the set say target creature. Yes. Control the, the magic. Wards do, control yeah, creature right. the, bond. Uh, the wards do, holy and unholy strength do. There's just plenty of examples. Most of them say target. You want to know what one of the hilarious exceptions to that is relevant to blessing? No. What is it? Oh, is it Aspect of Wolf? What's the, what's the cousin to blessing in this set? Oh, um... Another aura that has almost the same effect in a different color. Fire breathing. Fire breathing does not have the word target yes. on it. In fact, it has no words on it at all. <laughs> the, so the alpha fire breathing, the text box is just R colon plus one plus zero. What does zero. that even mean? <laughs> <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> So there are so many examples where target is used, both frequently on auras and on other spells, like spells like flight and, and many others. Target creature is now a flying creature. Yeah. So targeting is, is you're right, it's, it's replete. But hilariously, Blessing uses it and Fire Breathing doesn't. That is amazing. That's amazing. That yeah. yeah. I mean, because, and, and it's specifically, where tar- as you point out, where targeting, targeting is most used, widely used, is with the enchant creatures, like... Uh, Earthbind, Fear. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we already mentioned a couple of others. The the wards, of course. Yeah. But it also it also appears, and I think where it most appears is when there are cards that interact with cre- a single creature. So like Giant yes. Growth, Flight, um, mm-hmm. Lightning uh, Bolt does, it, Guardian Angel, 
Um, it, it even uses those cases. This is so weird because in the case of Healing Solve versus Guardian Angel, it Guardian Angel says any one target, whereas Healing mm-hmm. Solve says a single target. <laughs> yeah. so, so even like, for the yeah just like blessing and fire breathing even for the attempted same effect you're getting different language yeah yeah and it's <laughs> worth noting too that i think i think and i haven't done a comprehensive analysis on this but i think that t- targeting didn't apply to players in alphas and nomenclature that makes sense I'm look i'm yeah i'm checking i'm checking for mind twist no. here hold on just a moment no, mine just says opponent. And ancestral yeah. and so brain th- geyser don't use targeting, yeah. but holy armor so players and invisibility. weren't targeted. Yeah. yeah. Creatures could be and lands could be, but lightning bolt then becomes a bit of an exception because it says any target, which includes players. players. So maybe under yeah. alpha interpretation, it can't hit players, you know, which is interesting. Uh, which I mean, if you we'll, if we'll you, pay attention to that as we go through this to see if there's any example where target player is specifically called out. Well, healing solve and lightning bolt have similar templating in that regard, right? So mm-hmm. if target if target in this vernacular refers specifically to creatures, which does make sense, then one possible interpretation is that lightning bolt and healing solve can't be used on a player, which is very interesting. That is. That is contextually possible. However, I would compare that to uh, Demonic Hordes, which says tap to destroy one land in Alpha. So that's not targeted. Which I'm is, looking which at, is what's consistent the, with this theory. That which tar- is consistent yeah. with that. Yeah, what's the aura? What's an aura that enchants a land in Alpha? There's lots of Cursed Venom. Land. Um, yeah, so Psychic, Psychic Venom, Venom probably just says a land. Let me let me find it. Psychic Venom says whenever... No. Oh, what's this target, target land? Oh my god. Oh no. <laughs> okay, never amazing. mind. There goes that theory. Yeah, um, Alpha is just hilariously inconsistent in almost every regard. So, so what about cursed? Uh, what about uh, cursed land and warped artifact? Take a quick look at those. I'll look at warp art, warped artifacts since I'm because I'm close to it. Okay, so warp artifact says target artifacts controller. Cursed land says target lands controller. So you can obviously target lands with auras in Alpha, but demonic hordes doesn't target. For yeah. some reason, <laughs> it's and also, I want to look at icy manipulator because that has a very broad targeting spectrum. Icy manipulator says one colon you no. may tap any land creature or artifact and play on either side. So there's no targeting there. It doesn't say and, any and, single. It just says any. Yeah. It says any. But, yeah. And humorously, cards like ice storm say it destroys any one land. So um, by the way, psionic blast and uh and uh, prodigal sorcerer and rod of ruin all use the language of targeting. And it's any target, yeah. So, yeah. Interesting. All three of them say so the any o- target. The only time that players are targeted so far that we've seen is in the context of any target. Right. Interesting. That's so... All right, int- well, let's keep, let's keep an eye on that. Uh, targeting, <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, it, it's... The, uh, it, the other thing... Go ahead. No, I just say it's a very important term, and it is weird how it's used in some... In some cases, to talk about sources instead of targets, and you have single versus any. So I think just yeah. being aware of those kind of syntactical differences i think is useful to think about so yeah well there's one other thing about blessing that this is a a comparatively small point but it's a a mechanical one for the whole set a color identity issue and that is blessing is part of a, a handful of effects that establish white as the color that pumps power and toughness both at the same time and, yeah. and for the same cost Obviously, green does it with giant growth, so there's some overlap there, and green and white are Holy allies. Holy Strength is, and Crusade yeah. being the other two examples. 
Yeah. And so in comparison to something like Red's fire breathing and both the card fire breathing and creatures with fire breathing like Shivan and Blue's water breathing (laughs) in the form (laughs) of uh, uh, what? Sorry. What's the card with water breathing? Um, I thought there was a card that had plus. I'm not sure what you're talking about in this set. I thought there was a card that had plus zero plus one in this set. There is. It's oh, sorry. There's there's holy armor, which oh, it's wall of water. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking of wall of water. So the the notion here that you can, you can uh, pump power only in wall of water, just like fire breathing, and so so this is this blessing here is by comparison drawing contrast between red and blue's ability to pump one stat. Whereas white and green also have the yeah. ability to pump both stats at once. Well, we, yeah. So giant growth obviously establishes green as being able to pump front, you know, power and toughness. And aspect of wolf mm-hmm. only only pumps power, right? Do we establish that? I can't remember. No, it, it pumps both. It pumps both. It pumps both. So so yeah. both aspect of wolf, which is the enchantment version, and then the inst- instant version, do both. Um, mm-hmm. White has a kind of. I think it has a broader variety of that in alpha, though, because it has yes. it has crusade. It has blessing, it has holy armor, and holy strength. And it has righteousness, which is an instant version of defense. Right, righteousness, which is actually, yeah, I mean, which is actually the biggest stat change in the format, aside from things that scale by mana. Yeah. Yeah. So white has five of those. Green has, so far, we've seen two. Um, Yeah. And And white also has castle coming up. Yeah, it's one of, oh, that's that's six then. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's got a lot of uh, pump, but half of them pump both. Half of them, some of them pump asymmetrically, and then yeah. some are symmetrical. So some are sorry, only, or one yeah. side or the other. Yeah. So it's um, it's fascinating. Asymmetrical in in two different senses. One which is slightly more on toughness than the other, which I think is the only instance of that. Right? Like holy strength is the only card that does a little bit more on one side than the other in alpha. If I'm not mistaken, everything else, you, you else mean- is either zero or an X. X and zero. Well, holy and unholy strength. Right? Yes, I'm sorry. And, and holy strength. Of those two combined as a dyad, yes, I think you're right. <clears throat> yeah. Fascinating. So the yeah. other thing... So white does the most of this. That's interesting. Yeah, white has the most pumping. I think... I, I've forgotten the figures on this. I'll look this up as we progress, but there is an immense asymmetry in the actual number of creatures printed. Oh, yeah. Um. Yeah, we haven't actually By gotten color. to a, rep- a representative uh, sampling of common creatures in this format yet, <laughs> because the only common creature we've discussed so far is Banalish Hero. But when we get to some common creatures of other colors, we're going to be able to draw those comparisons a little more starkly. So the reason I want to mention this is because it is interesting to observe how deep white is into enchantments, um, which obviously establishes white is the enchantment color as well. Um, although there are lots of other, blue has a lot of enchantments, you know, feedback, creature bond, so on. But um, it is notable that there is a, a huge range in terms of the number of creatures that each of these colors have. You know, just in, in yeah. terms of numbers, it's like not symmetrical at all across the color pie. Obviously, it matters less in alpha, alpha or original magic because there's no four card limit. So you know, theoretically, red, if red had the best creature but only had one creature. It could still supply the most offense, even if you know white had the ten worst creatures and had ten. You know, um, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to put we, that. Out we there. touched on this issue when we talked about the context between white and black earlier because I, I misstated, I misspoke a minute ago because 
we we've only reviewed alphabetically one common creature but we talked a lot about say the, the contrast between white and black yeah and how and how much more aggressive white was because of the curves it's got and the nature of the common creatures right yeah so so i what i want to do before we wrap up our commentary on blessing is just how powerful is this card so i mean it's a rare whereas fire breathing <laughs> if i recall correctly is a common it might be an uncommon but yep. i think it's a common i think it's a common yeah and and you know obviously fire breathing is kind of in you know there's a lot of there's a number of creatures that have that in in alpha like shivan dragon dragon whelp uh, uh wall of fire can be can give its can give its has its fire breathing built in um how do you how do you rank this in a power level sense compared to fire breathing kevin the context of pumping power and toughness i think in the context of just limited edition alpha is very strong. Yeah. Because in the, in the right combination of creatures, for example, this effect becomes just dominant. We talked about the impact of banding yes, earlier. Yes, it's right? unbelievable with banding. Like, and so, yeah, just putting this on, on a, a banding hero. creature, yeah, even a banalish hero is, is incredibly Immensely strong. Immensely powerful. Yeah, and the simple truth is that even as deep as alpha is, there are certain fundamental things that are very thin in the set. Re- removal is one of them. Well, there removal for enchantments. Removal for enchantments is very thin in this set, right? Well, there is a lot Obviously, of re- removal, broadly speaking, drain life, disintegrate, fireball, sonic blast, but is swords, but there is, I think you're right. I think that there is, it's harder, much harder to remove enchantments. Very few things yeah. can actually remove enchantments besides like well disc the, you know right the, there's so there's a trank. there's a healthy amount of different types of removal we've touched on it and we'll continue to reiterate that alpha is very um, direct damage and it's yeah yeah uh, but you listed off a number of them red has a very difficult time removing a creature with blessing yes. in this format you basically have to have one instant speed thing to make them tap out on their turn and then one sorcery speed thing on your turn. Otherwise, that's kind of it, you know? But there are still plenty of options. I didn't want to give the impression that there aren't. But at the same time, the efficient, good answers for a creature with blessing in this format are pretty slight. Yeah, I think I I think your analysis is keen, and I think it shows just how much more powerful blessing is than fire breathing. That mm-hmm. that that by in some sense, I mean obviously the offense matters, but the ability to pump both gives you so much flexibility that it in some sense it makes it nearly impossible to deal with that creature in red because as long as the the white player that has you know whatever it is a banal hero or veteran bodyguard with blessing on it is just sitting there that creature is basically invincible with their white mana <laughs> untapped with their white mana un- untapped that is right because sure because the and I, this actually becomes extremely relevant we haven't touched on this yet this I think the first instance to bring this up but the way fast effects and in instance work under alpha, the alpha rulebook is that they all resolve simultaneously, which means that if your opponent, if you, your opponent, let's say your opponent goes to play a fireball on your creature and you respond by pumping blessing to protect it. And then your opponent mm-hmm. responds with lightning bolt to kill it, mm-hmm. right? And a stack version of that. It may resolve differently, right? It's not to say respond, but let's say they let all those, the fireball and the blessing resolve, you know, whatever. In a stack version, you could stack things such that you could pick off the creature. Whereas in, 
in alpha, um, in a sense, the giant growth effects are better than the burn effects because they mm-hmm. will always resolve regardless of the timing in which you play them. They will always resolve. So bl- yeah. blessing by being able to respond, you know, to something, and it doesn't matter if your opponent can respond in in response to activating blessing. The blessing is always going to win out, which makes that effect even more powerful. I think defensively. Yeah, and that's not intuitive to someone just looking back and and looking at blessing as a card with today's eyes because that behavior is completely not intuitive right. and obviously incorrect in today's context. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. And I, I want to add another thing too, and that is related to what I've just said. There's a reason why this kind of power and toughness pumping is very, it's very downplayed in modern magic. It's not like it doesn't exist. It's just that it's not a staple of modern set design by any stretch. It's, it's the exception by far for any new design, even on common creatures. You know, you don't see fire breathing that often. And part of the reason is, is because the way sets are constructed these days, removal is, is far more common and far more uh, tactically good in modern magic. One example that might resonate with modern players who maybe don't, haven't studied the set alpha is with black. And we're going to reinforce this more later, but today... Black is widely uh, accepted and understood to be a removal color, the removal color for nearly unconditional creature removal. If you need something that says destroy target creature, your go-to color for that is black, right? Now, how many effects Like terror, etc. Yeah. Yeah. How many effects in alpha actually destroy target creature? Very few. In fact, I think zero that just say destroy target creature. Right. That text that literal text destroy target creature wasn't invented for years after this set (laughs) the only thing that comes close to it is terror yeah and it has limitations it can't hit black or artifact creatures yeah i mean chaos orb is there's no second closest there's no second card (laughs) that's the thing there's no second card in alpha that looks like terror there's swords to plowshares and white which functions like terror but it's not destroy it's a lot different yes and then the next closest thing is your royal assassin which is a rare and a a strongly conditional one at that so if you're thinking about modern set design as hey i'm going to put blessing on this creature well that's just asking to get two for one in the alpha context that is not entirely so great still possible to get two for one of course but it's not a given the way it is in modern draft sets yeah, uh, so it just goes to show you that the, the, the design of the set made these kinds of enchantments more powerful, I think, than we would regard them today. That if you're playing mm-hmm, kind of like mm-hmm. limited, limited edition alpha, <laughs> Blessing is ex- <laughs> right extremely yeah. powerful as a rare, I think. In fact, it probably and, just wins the game. I imagine if I drafted it and it constructed in a in a draft, it would be probably one of my top picks. It's just so did good. Did you watch the beta draft that happened? I watched... Uh, at a GP, yeah, I watched well a back. couple of those matches. They were fascinating, but I didn't. I I should I should go back and watch more of them. I did. I, well, your observation there. Uh, I'm not saying it actually happened. What I'm saying is is that your your the inference by what you're making there is that it doesn't take much to dominate a limited game of alpha, yeah. and that is absolutely true. <laughs> like giant spider is a complete house yeah. in alpha draft <laughs> because the quality of removal is so, so low. Weak. And that's the same, and the inverse is that cards like Blessing, which can just dominate almost any other creature in the format, given sufficient mana, are just incredibly powerful. Yeah. Great conversation on Blessing. Yeah, I love it. I think we should move on. Yes. 
Let's talk about Blue Elemental Blast. Oh, this is a great card. And its cousin is an even greater card. So in Alpha, Blue Elemental Blast is an interrupt. I think that's the first one it of those is. we're reviewing, and That's right? the first thing I want to talk about. But go ahead and yeah, read the card. Let me read the text, though. Yeah. It, it costs blue. It, the text is counters a red spell being cast or destroys a red card in play. Lots of fun stuff to tease out there, Steve. But go ahead on interrupt. So uh, we talked about timing. In Alpha, there are basically two timing rules. That's it. So, in, you know, in, in contemporary <laughs> magic, the main timing rule is the stack, and everything works according to the stack, right? Pretty simple. In alpha, there's two timing rules. The first is that uh, uh, all fast effects and spell, all fast effects and spells, resolve simultaneously. That's the main rule, mm. and there's two exceptions to that. The first exception is that um, if there is a incompatible or kind of paradoxical outcome um, that can't, that doesn't make sense, <laughs> then the player who played the last spell decides. So, for example, you know, I mentioned uh, Lightning Bolt versus Giant Growth. You play them both around the same time. They resolve simultaneously. Um, so what happens is the creature takes three damage, but it also gains three power, so the Giant Growth will win out, regardless of who plays the Giant Growth or Lightning Bolt first. Right. That's the that's the that's the general mm-hmm. rule. But the first ex- exception is that if you can't resolve, if spells just can't, doesn't make sense to resolve them simultaneously, then whoever played the last one decides. And so an example of that would be, I have a Shivan Dragon. Kevin, you play a Swords to Plowshares on it. I respond by playing Unsummon. Right. It can't. The Shivan Dragon can't both be right. in my hand and remove from game. So in order to resolve that paradox. The alpha rulebook specifies that the la- player who played the last spell decides. But the second exception is that interrupts are faster than everything else. And then if there's a contradiction in terms of interrupts, then you go back to the first exception. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so what that means is that interrupts are f- far more powerful than I think people would understand looking at these cards today as instance. Because what it means in practical terms, and there's a very strange oddity with respect to blue and red elemental blast, which I'll get to, but it, it, what it means uh-huh. is functionally this. Kevin, you play a spell, uh, whatever you want to play that's not an interrupt, and then I play a spell, and you want to respond with the fast effect. Uh, if the spell that I play is an interrupt, you can't respond with a fast effect. You can't tap a prodigal sorcerer. You can't... Um, mm-hmm play ancestral recall you can't you know activate a, a cop <laughs> in response you can't activate a chaos right. orb right you can and this has come up in alpha league where i'm playing like for example if you i think the most powerful probably the probably the biggest power differential as a result of of removing interrupts is probably power sync kevin which we'll talk about later mm-hmm. but basically yeah. because Power Sync requires an opponent to tap down, which means they can't play instants in response. You can't play a lightning bolt or whatever in response. And the one exception to that that becomes very important with Power Sync is Dark Ritual, because Dark (laughs) Ritual is also an interrupt. (laughs) Right. But, but but, so interrupts as a general class are far more powerful under Alpha, third edition, and fourth edition rules 
and fifth edition rules than they are in in sixth and post sixth edition rule sets where interrupts were were turned into instants. And so that's the main thing I wanted. Is there? There's a specific thing I want to talk about in the case of Blue Elmo Blast and Red Elmo Blast, but is there anything more generally you wanted to talk about in terms of interrupts? I just wanted to call out, does the Alpha rulebook refer to it as an interrupt window? I forget if that was codified in Alpha or if that was just something that came up later. No, it doesn't. To the best of my knowledge, it does not. Yeah, yeah, so uh, since I didn't start playing in Alpha, I maybe colloquially <laughs> remember interrupts as being part of an interrupt window is that whenever any effect went on the stack, the first thing that happened in response was interrupts. There was a window where you played interrupts and then that window closed. And that's a thing I didn't hear you mention, yes. Steve, is that if both players didn't decide not to play an interrupt, the interrupts resolve then no more interrupts could first. be played. Yes. Before <laughs> yeah. any other actions resolve. So there, that is actually, right. it doesn't use the term window, but it does use this phrase in the rule book. It says, this is the key sentence. It says, interrupts take place more quickly, comma, actually being resolved before <laughs> actions in progress, comma, whereas instants don't take effect until both players have finished reacting to one another. So there you, it kind of creates that yeah. concept, but doesn't use that terminology. Right, right. Yeah, and that's, so that's why the nomenclature, you know, the actual name of interrupt is meant to evoke that fact that you're interrupting something else. And it, but in practice... It took a couple of years, but in practice, the, the R&D realized that instance and interrupts didn't need to function yeah. differently. Well, I, so they were eventually <laughs> consolidated. Right. It could have been simplified, but I actually I like the power level increase of PowerSync. It, I think, makes PowerSync mm. the, probably the best counterspell in kind of ordinary alpha because it, it interacts... Yeah. And I can it has a lot why. of tactical yeah. power. It's so, it's so yeah, powering. I mean, with, yeah. with things like, for example, psychic venom, it's you know very frustrating yeah. to deal with. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so for modern for modern players, imagine a hypothetical card that said counter target spell. Your opponent taps all their lands. Your opponent's mana pool is emptied. And it has yeah, split exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's how power sync functions basically in inside of yeah, alpha. Yeah, because it has almost almost like a kind of time walk effect, a part of a time walk effect, a staple exactly. onto it. Obviously, not all the time walk right. effects, but point is, you're denying them more than just one. One spell. other point before I talk about this oddity with the blasts, which is that al- the interrupts are distributed very oddly in alpha. So mana effects. Basic, like the Moxon and Black Lotus, if there are ostensibly fast effects, state that they can be played as an interrupt speed, which is important so that you can respond, right? Um, dark, the mm-hmm. other inst, the other cards, the only other cards besides counter spells that are interrupts are Dark Ritual and a handful of mostly black, I think maybe entirely black, mana generating effects like Sacrifice. I think there's one other, Kevin. Maybe Sacrifice is the only other example. Um, but but Lanor yeah. Elves can be played as interrupt activate ability lay lay druid activate abilities and interrupt. <laughs> don't don't forget those color changing things. The laces the laces yeah which we will we will spend a lot of time on <laughs> when we get when we get to the first yeah. lace. Um, so so those are played at interrupt so that people can generate the mana they need to to play around power sync or or you know do mm-hmm. other things play other counter spells in response. But here's probably one of the weirdest, I don't know what you want to call it, quiddities or <laughs> idiosyncrasies <laughs> of Alpha. 
that created a lot of timing problems that was not resolved by the alpha rulebook, which is that all the interrupts basically do something what on what we now call the stack, right, Kevin? Which is that like, someone mm-hmm. plays a spell and mm-hmm. you respond with interrupt and they can respond with interrupt and you can stack counter magic, right? The problem comes in that, that red elemental blast and blue elemental blast not only target spells being cast, the stack, they destroy mm-hmm. a card in play, which means mm-hmm. that a that a red elemental blast can destroy a prodigal sorcerer before your opponent can respond by activating the prodigal sorcerer. Yep. (laughs) And that's just another hugely powerful effect. Yeah. In general, and and it scales up too, right? Like a blue elemental blast can destroy uh, a shivan dragon and your opponent can't do anything about it except for a counter spell of their own. Yes. They can't respond by pumping the Shivan Dragon. They can't respond. Right. You can't bounce it or regenerate it. Yes, you can't even regenerate it. (laughs) Even if it has regeneration on it. Exactly. The card regeneration. Literally, you can't regenerate it. You cannot. Yep. (laughs) It's great. (laughs) It's so funny. (laughs) That's awesome. Anyway, that's the last thing I wanted to make about it. Obviously, the, the case is... The case is more intense than the case of Red Elemental Blast, but that's they created a lot of problems, I think. I would think it's safe to say. Confusion, right? Yeah. Yeah. So there's one other thing I want to add about the Blasts, and it applies to the Blasts and one other card, and that is this is the first card we're going to review, and there's only three of them, so it's near the end already, that ultimately become modal mm. from mm. Alpha. The two blasts and the only other card that becomes modal out of alpha. Can you guess? Well, Steve? I don't know what you mean by become. I mean ancestral and brain geyser are modal in a some sense. Oh. No, they're not. They're not. Oh, though. I see. Ancestral's target player draws yeah, three cards. Right. This is a card where you choose a mode oh, on an Interesting. Let me think for just a moment. Yeah. I love this. I love this kind of trivia. Um, yeah. No, I can't think of it off the top of my head. I don't want to. What? What is it? It's one. It's one of the boons. That'll get it to you. Oh, um, it has to be healing salve, then, right? It's only. Yeah, that's right. Interesting. Healing salve and the two blasts are the only cards in Alpha that are currently templated as modal <laughs> spells. That I yeah. think that was beyond the Alpha the Alpha templating team to figure out modality. It was <laughs> <laughs> well and. And it's also pretty funny because the templating on the blasts and healing salve are are significantly different. Oh, really? Yeah. Because blue elemental blast just uses the word or counters a red spell being cast or destroys a red card in play, whereas healing salve says gain three life, comma, or prevent up to three damage being dealt to a single target. So there's already you've alluded to oh. the you know the differences in commas. Before yes. and how and how meaningful they might be, there's there's even a difference in how they're templated just between wow. these modalities. You know what that that actually brings an intro, in, interesting textual possibility around healing salve that I hadn't keyed into, which is that one possible, very reasonable interpretation of it is that it either gains you three life or prevents up to three damage to a creature, right? And that it doesn't need to prevent three damage to you. Assuming players can't be targeted, aren't targets, right? Because if you gain three life, <laughs> well, it does fu- use that. It does use that single right, target because yeah. gaining three life is functionally the same thing. 
So you would never, that second modality doesn't apply to players. So it's either you gain three life or you prevent three damage from being dealt to a single creature, in essence, to a target creature. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. Like, yeah, I see your point there is that, and that has some, that has some meaning in some strange corner cases. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Like, for example, well, we can, we can talk about those later. We get to things like pestilence. (laughs) Yeah. Fascinating. Well, the only the last thing I want to say about Blue Elemental Blast, though, because um, we use Blue yeah. Elemental Blast as our first interrupt to talk about interrupts and modality, is that um, it's obviously not as powerful as Red Elemental Blast, because Red Elemental Blast has a much larger scope for, <laughs> in a sense, but it's still a very powerful card. Um, and Yeah, it, I wanted to touch on that, too. It's used it over time. Yes. One of the key cards I want to just point out that became very powerful with is when Blood Moon was printed. And oh, yeah. with the dark, that it became especially oh, yeah. powerful for blue decks because they didn't need to have the disenchant to deal with it. Um. So, so I, I think you're right. I think its power kind of grew over time in a very interesting way. In fact, I think I saw in a vintage challenge recently a hydroblast in a cyborg, Kevin. I well, I was just going to point out that the card I, I have played blue elemental blast in vintage. <laughs> okay, so that might not be saying much. I've been playing Vintage for decades, but the point is is that unlike Red Elemental Blast, which because of the omnipresence of blue is almost always a reasonable sideboard card, at least mm-hmm. in Vintage, right? You're almost always in an average tournament going to have targets for Rebs in your sideboard. That the, true is not, the same is not true for a Blue Elemental Blast. But as Red ebbs and flows in the format... There are some high points where Blue Elemental Blast is a reasonable sideboard card. And ironically, <laughs> it scales up with how good Red Elemental Blast is as a sideboard right. card, right? The better. Because if you're playing like a Jess, <laughs> if you're playing a, a like a Jeskai anarchist or Arcanist mirror yeah. today, your opponent has multiple permanents that are red, and you know they're gonna have four or more Red Elemental Blasts coming yeah. in, right? And so if you wanted to be super tactical about it then you could have a spell that answers both Dreadhorde Arcanist and Dak and then all their rebs. And so Kevin, anyway, when you say that, I'm you, know, you know what image pops right into now, my but... mind's eye is the um the Sean O'Brien total recall. Misstep your misstep, your misstep, your misstep, your misstep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. <laughs> Um, I've also I've also played and seen play uh, plenty of Blue Elemental Blasts in my day because of the omnipresence of Goblin oh, Welder. Oh God, yeah. There was a, a period that we've talked about recently in this show where Goblin Welder was om- everywhere in vintage, and in those kind of contexts, uh, Blue Elemental Blast was a perfectly good, perfectly card. cromulent. Perfect. I was I was sidestepping <laughs> saying that. Thank you for adding it. In. <laughs> uh, <laughs> All right. Anything else on Beb? Uh, no. Good card though. All right. Very good card. All right, so the next card up is Blue Ward. Steve, we're finally getting um, some efficiencies of scale with the set review. I don't think we need to say much more about it that we haven't said already. I think we already mentioned the art, too, so nothing, nothing. Yeah, the art is is interesting. I like it. Uh, All right, let's move on to Bog Wraith. All right, let's talk about the alpha text on Bog Wraith. So this is a creature, 3B Summon Wraith, which is great and menacing. The only word in the text box is Swamp Walk. And it's a 3-3. This is the first landwalking creature, yeah. Steve, that we've encountered in our set review here. And landwalk has some some sparse but but consistent representation in alpha. Yeah. This card is another one I, I alluded to that 
idiosyncrasies of alpha draft earlier um this card is another complete house if you yes. play one of these against a, another black player in a limited environment in alpha because of the weaknesses of terror yes and other things and other systemic things this card is completely dominant well- uh, because of its swamp walking. It, am its I, size. I mean, I feel like this card, this template, this basic concept, four mana, three, three, swamp rock, whatever, has be, has become like a basic staple of limited design. Like just. Oh, and you're right. And alpha establishes that, right? I mean, alpha, there's a reason we call um, them hill giants, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> we call this model a hill giant because of alpha. How many, is this the most reprinted card from alpha? functional or otherwise it feels like it's got to be i mean outside of the basic lands of course it feels like it's got to be darn near up there i don't know if you can quickly do you mean bog wraith or do you mean this model of a four mana three three but but large more generally the model how many times has bog wraith been let's look it up oh bog wraith itself not too many times i mean it's been there are 20 prints of it so it's been reprinted a lot but a lot of that's in the first couple of core sets you know because it was in fourth edition and then a fifth edition variant and then it was in sixth edition so like uh yeah it was in starter also like it's had a number of reprints the most recent one being m10 but the your point about the fact that this is a model for creatures is true even today the four mana three three body is the staple and the the benefits that you get from paying that amount of mana have been increasing over the years due to power creep right so we would not play a four mana three three swamp walker today. This would be underpowered. Even in like even in common creatures. In sealed? Even, yeah, um, even in sealed, the four mana three three with nothing what, else. But the swamp walk than swamp walk is a okay. little underpowered. Yeah. To use the most recent example that I can think of, go to look at core twenty twenty one. The set has a common three three for three B in skeleton archer. Only now, Skeleton Archer enters the battlefield and deals one damage mm. to any target, right? That's a big yeah. improvement over Swamp Walk. But the, the fact remains is that even in modern set design, we're getting 3B for a 3-3 with an ability. That that part has was established in Alpha and has not materially left the game even to this day. I, yeah. I wanted to focus for a second on the, on the Land Walk part of this. I just did a scan, and mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken, there's a very small number of c- creatures in this set that just have, say, X walk, you know, like island walk, mountain walk. And if, it, it, let's set aside Goblin King, which is different because it gives all goblins mountain walk, walk which is ambiguous whether yeah. it applies to itself or not. Am I mistaken that the only <laughs> cards that have a form of walk just directly built into them are Bog Wraith and Sh- Shannon and Dryads? Is that it? You might be right. Shut I think of it try. as being bigger in this set because the two lords grant it and because there's at least one aura, right? There's burrowing. Is there another aura that grants it? Maybe I'm misremembering. Also, it's referenced in um, Island Walk. Island Walk is referenced somewhere. It's referenced in Island yes. Sanctuary. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So there's only two cards with Land Walk that just straight up have it and then there's there is uh lord of atlantis so there's actually three lords yeah the the grixis lords all grant the walk ability to their creatures and ironically (laughs) i just did a double check island sanctuary mentions island walk there is no way to get island alpha wait isn't there is there a card that gives you a land walk ability of your choice Jeez. Or was that not in Alpha? That is strange, Kevin. 
That is very strange. What's the thing that? What's the card that I'm thinking of that grants the landwalk ability you of your choice? Up. I think that might be a legends card. I don't know. Yeah, look it up. It's a difficult thing to search yeah. for. Oh, Sig River Guide, which was printed in Lorwyn, says target Merfolk you control gains protection from the color of your choice. That's not what I'm looking for. What is the card that I'm thinking of that gets the landwalk ability of your choice? So, in Arabian Nights, we get Sandals of Abdallah. There you go. I sh- if you mentioned Arabian, I would have I would have known that. Yeah. Yeah. Which and then walk. in Legends, there's a there's a creature devouring deep that has Island Walk. There's two spells that relate to Island Walk. Those are part water and undertow. And then there's Gosta Dirk, which also says creatures with Island Walk can be blocked as if they didn't have that ability, which is hilarious because there's so few ways to even get that ability. But yeah, I'm thinking the the first card that does what I'm thinking of is the card Illusionary Presence from Ice Age. Ah. It's it says during your upkeep, illusionary presence gains a landwalk ability of your choice until end of turn. Nice. And that's temple that's that's how it's printed. It's templated today that says at the beginning of your upkeep, choose a land type. Illusionary presence gains landwalk of the chosen type until end of turn. That's the kind of effect I was thinking of, but that effect appears to just not exist in alpha. I was thinking that it did, but I guess I was projecting forward into other sets. That's really that's, interesting. That's fascinating is what it is. Yeah, the dearth of Landwalk so, in this set. I mean, so it's in the Grixis Lords, Lord of Atlantis, Zombie Master, yeah. and Go- Goblin King. Um, but it's only explicitly granted just in, in this kind of simple way on two very, very different creatures. Yeah, how <laughs> interesting. I I have imprinted Landwalk as being more important in Alpha yeah. than it truly is. And, and <laughs> odd that, that those two, like, why? And by the way, those two creatures, obviously, I guess it makes sense, Bogwraith... I guess should be able to go through the swamp, and Shannon Dryad should be able to go through the forest, right? Without without being obstructed. Yeah, but by that logic, why don't all the elementals have <laughs> land walk, right? Why doesn't a water elemental have uh, island walk? Yeah, that's really interesting. So I my instincts tell me that that from a design and a and a balancing standpoint, they probably viewed land walk as being pretty powerful. Yeah. But at the same time, the two creatures that have it are common. No, un- Bogwraith is uncommon. Uh, sorry, Bogwraith yeah. is uncommon. I'm sorry, you're right. Bogwraith's uncommon. So maybe Bogwraith was bumped up a little bit because of it. And then Shannon and Dryads is probably a common. It's so basic, right? Goblin, un- I, I have to say from playing Alpha League, Goblin King is one of the top 10 creatures in Alpha League. It's in, like giving, yeah. giving, first of all, it gives itself plus one plus one under Alpha rules. And then giving. You know all the goblins. You know mountain walk. Basically, with a goblin king and just one goblin, like a Mons Goblin Raiders or Goblin Balloon Brigade, that's five unblockable damage if you have a mountain, which is very, yeah. very quick, a very brief clock. <laughs> <laughs> so, it turns out through our analysis here that I've uncovered one thing, and that is Shannon and Dryads is the only common card that grants a walk ability. Because Bogwraith and Burrowing, even though they're underpowered by today's standards, are uncommons, and then the Lords are rares, and Island Sanctuary is a rare. So my instincts are that they felt like Landwalk was a powerful effect, and that's why the only card that has it 
natively is just a 1-1. One, one. And it's probably part of the reason why Bograith is an uncommon in this set, where by today's standards, it would be worse than a common. Yeah. It's, it's an unprintably bad <laughs> common in limited by today's standards. That's really interesting. I never really, never really encoded how gently Landwalk was treated, basically, because I think of the lords, and I think that Landwalk is all over the set when it's really not. The last thing I wanted to point out about Bograith, Kevin, is the art is very interesting. I think what's probably most interesting about the art is that the the background, it, it, my eye is drawn towards the background almost before the foreground, which is very weird, unusual in Alpha. That that, that, that <laughs> That's right. That wall, I mean, it, it doesn't, this reminds me of like a New England winter rather than some sort of like, you know, Louisiana bayou, but um, <laughs> because it's got like a cedar or a, a pine tree in the background, so it doesn't really feel boggy to me. But the point I'm trying to make is that that background art is very alluring in some way. And um, Well, uh, Jeff Mangus uh, did a lot of art in Alpha, and there's no denying that he has a distinctive style that lots of old-school players like. But one of the things that is, I think, noteworthy for his pieces that you've just observed, which is especially in contrast to some of his peers, like Dan Frazier and Richard Thomas and Doug Schuler and others, is he has put almost all of his subjects in a context. Strongly, yeah. right? Black Knight had a castle in the distance behind, and Bograith has this wall. Yeah. Why there's a wall in a bog, I don't really know. But the point is, is that there's context to almost all the Jeff Mangus arts. But the the least contextual one is probably Aspect of Wolf. But even then, there's a mountain in the background. But the difference in both of those cases, I Black Knight is actually a perfect. In both Black Knight and Aspect of Wolf are are perfect yeah. points of comparison. Is the background is like faded. It's a little bit more blurry, uh, you know, a little less in focus. A little more distant. A little more distant, a little right. less the in focus. The background's very focused. Extremely focused in Bograith. It's like... Yeah. I never really noticed that the trees are very well defined. Extremely here. rendered, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I love the art, though. I, yeah. I really like it. Oh. Yeah, Jeff Mangus's art is obviously, especially in Alpha, is obviously has a lot of uniformity to it. Like, every one of his pieces has the same color palette except for maybe Merfolk of the Pearl Trident, where there's a lot of blue there, but almost all his pieces across multiple colors, red, green, white, they all have this gray patina to yeah. them. <laughs> it's very muted. But the, but it also, this looks like it, the art, it might have been art in Ice Age, not like a Bograith. So it's, anyway. That's a good point. I've always thought it was a very wintry setting, even though there's maybe, there's a hint of snow on the ground, yes, right? Yes, frost. And, and the deciduous trees appear not to have leaves for the most part. Right. But there's a, an evergreen in the background. So, yeah, it really suggests winter. And you're right. This looks like it could have been an Ice Age piece. And who knows? Maybe it was maybe it planned was. for Ice Age at some <laughs> point. Yeah. But there's a Bograith equivalent in Ice Age, isn't there? Yeah, I didn't remember the name till I looked it up. But it's Morphine, which is the same exact card. A 3B, 3-3, Swamp Walk. It's just the same card with a rename in Ice Age. And the art is <laughs> significantly different. I mean, yeah. this is a scary very, alien kind of art. Very Anson Maddox-y art. Yeah, exactly. But so I'm not simply I'm not suggesting anything. I don't have any proof of this matter, but it could be that the art for Bograith was at some point positioned more toward Ice Age than toward Alpha. But we'll never know. Yeah. At least I won't ever know. I don't think. Anyway, that's interesting. Anything else on Bograith, Steve? All right. So let's talk about a very, very powerful and formative card in Brain Geyser. This is the model for so much both in terms of design and uh, deck construction and so many things. 
Brain Geyser in Alpha costs X UU. It's a sorcery. It says draw X cards or force opponent to draw X cards, which is the exact same template as Ancestral Recall and has been subsequently templated exactly the same since then, which is target player draws X cards. This card, I know, Steve, you probably have played with this card a ton, likely more than I have. Given your Alpha League experience, given your historical uh, type one longer term, yeah. yeah, historical type one experience and your old school experience, this card is a powerhouse in a lot of those contexts. One of my, yeah, I mean, I have so many memories of mana draining into a brain geyser, especially with like mm. keeper type decks. I remember JP Mayer Good doing stuff. It. Yeah, JP Mayer doing it quite a bit. Uh, obviously, it was the the predecessor to Stroke of Genius. It's important though that this is this is a paired card in this set. So Mind Twist and Brain Geyser are the are the pair. Um, mm-hmm. The the thing about Brain Geyser that's remarkable, I think probably most remarkable in Alpha is the Alpha rulebook just says you need to have a forty card deck. So Brain Geyser and also in Alpha League is a, is a very powerful win condition, and not a win condition right. in the sense of like Mind Twist, your opponent on turn one win the game. I mean like literally win the game, not. You know, create conditions where your opponent is unable to come, to win. <laughs> I mean, actually end the game. Right. Uh, and so it's 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 immensely powerful in Alpha League. It's an immensely powerful card in in old school, um, even with just one mana drain. And it's uh, it was immensely powerful in Type One for a long time. It really, even when they printed Stroke of Genius, the Keeper decks really relied on Geyser and Stroke to replenish their hands and then rebuild their position and, and pull so far ahead, you know, that your opponent could never come back. And it functions as a kind of fireball win condition once the game progresses to a certain point. You know, Steve, I've... It, it's interesting. This card, I have a lot of memories similar to yours as well. Not quite the same quantity, but similar in quality. And the the ways I view this card are interesting because when I look at it, I'm just looking at it an image of it on my screen right now and it seems so powerful (laughs) when i look at this card i think yeah that's what i want to (laughs) do i want to put that in my deck and resolve it and it's hilarious because by today's standards this effect is still good but it's not the overpowering dominant thing right getting (laughs) getting uh, this kind of rate on drawing cards it's easy it's almost easy to do at this point right you mentioned Stroke of Genius. There's a couple other variants like Blue um, Blue Sun Zenith. We got Pull from Tomorrow now, which is an instant version of this card, except you discard one, but it, the instant part is huge. There's been a lot of variants of this card, and they've all been, I would argue, about the same in terms of power level, right? They've pulled different levers in terms of the mana cost and made it an instant and then added some variants on it, like Finale of... What's the blue one? Finale of Eternity? I can't remember if that's the blue one. Anyway... The, the point is, is this effect has stayed pretty uniform throughout Magic's history, but has it has required more oomph behind it to make it a really good card in modern Magic like standard. The, the prior version that was really close to this was um, the uh, Sphinx's, uh, Sphinx's Revelation, which was a gold card that tacked a white onto this and you gained the life in yeah. addition to the cards, which is super powerful. And then more recently, we've got the, the blue-green variant, which is Hydroid Crisis, which you only draw <laughs> half as many cards, but you get a giant creature to go with it. So I, I think it's interesting that this effect has has lingered throughout Magic and the power level has been toyed with, but it really hasn't deviated very much from this basic formula. The, the same, same approach. 
Interesting. Yeah. That's so interesting. There's so many cards in Alpha that that's not true for, right? Ancestor yeah. Recall is the classic example. Had to be way depowered, and Time Walk <laughs> had to be way depowered, and Time Twister too. This card, though, which was a powerhouse then, is still there was, pretty close to the mark. Kevin, there was, a, um, there was recently a tournament held this summer called the Nightmare 99, which I don't know if you saw it, but it's basically... Yeah, I saw the late the tail, the tail end yeah, of it. Yeah, but the basic setup was all the sets through you know, Urza Block, I think, no restrictions yeah. or, or and almost no bannings. And uh, didn't Randy win that? one? Yeah, Randy won it in against um, oh, what's his name? Brian Manalakos, and and Brian Weissman had an unbelievable deck. But I think all of them were basically, you know, they had a, a the geyser stroke was was part of the key win condition, you know, because you're using yeah. Academy to generate, you know, God knows amount of mana, and you know you can go infinite, you don't really need to, but um, <laughs> right, you know, you can go infinite with Power Monolith. Or capsize fast bond academy, um, uh, but uh, that this card this card is just p- powerful and it's you know both strategically and tactically useful. I think that's important to note. The other yeah. thing, Kevin, that is kind of interesting about this card, and I don't know why Mark Tadeen gets associated with these like weird abstract co- concepts, but Brain Geyser <laughs> kind of cements the notion of card drawing as an intellectual endeavor. You know, it's kind of like mm-hmm. in, in intellect. You know, by connoting at least, if not denoting, but connoting the brain as being the source of you know card advantage in some sense. That's interesting. When you uh, there's a much looser association in that with um, ancestor recall, right? Yeah, it's because it's denoting the notion of memory equating right. to it, as opposed to just more simply thought. Well, right? well, what's the other big draw draw spell in the set, Kevin? Besides well, those two. I guess, I guess the best example would be the wheel, the wheels, time twister and wheel. Well, of I had in I had in mind uh, JM Day Tom, which also a book. Oh, being okay, intellectual. Yep. yep. <laughs> well, and it's interesting because so ancestral and brain geyser and JM Day Tom kind of set up that that concept of thought related draw. But JM Day Tom is colorless, obviously, but the wheels. The wheels don't evoke that at all to me. Time Twister no. is far more akin to Time Walk in evoking traveling through time and resetting things, right? And the Wheel of Fortune, I guess, is meant to evoke whim and some and quasi randomness, which eventually was really brought into red as a color identity. There's not many other consistent repeatable draws in in Alpha, and we're going to talk about ones like Contract from Below and Howling Mind. Those don't. Those don't have the same no. connotation. I think, so. I think that this, the, the symmetrical ones don't have that, that connotation, but the asymmetrical ones, at least Bring Geyser and, and James Daytona, yeah. suggest that drawing cards is an intellectual, you know, for yourself is an intellectual endeavor. Are there any other things that don't relate to drawing cards in blue that equate to thought or memory, though, in Alpha? Or because, intelligence. Yeah. Or intelligence. Well, there's, okay, so there's Magical Hacked and Sleight of Mind, which both evoke manipulation right. of thought they're not related to drawing but that's very much evocative of the same thing yeah and then interestingly enough psionic blast yeah right which has nothing to do with drawing but just is the way that blue manufactures damage which it, is through psychic energy and, and psychic venom which yeah. also is a psychic yeah that's interesting so blue's approach to things was the drawing is definitely equated to thought and memory but so much of Blue's identity is equated to thought and memory. It's damage, and, it, and even, even thought lace, yeah. right? It's thought lace. So its ability to manipulate things is also evoking thought and memory 
That's interesting. So obviously that's part of Blue's flavor identity throughout all of Magic's history. But I think the the act of drawing cards being codified in terms of thought is something that Brain Geyser probably share takes a, a huge responsibility for right yeah. as founding as founding that if you look at any of the you know the deck variants from 1994 you know basically 1995 rather until 2000 they all had brain geyser even to 2001 2002 brain geyser oh, yeah. was a staple of type 1 and i guess just as a footnote it might be the most single most powerful card in alpha league seriously <laughs> it might be the, the most powerful card even more so than ancestral just because it's such a powerful win condition if you can just survive Long enough, Brain Geyser will either, you know, will win the game, and if you, or just pull you so far ahead. So something uh, from a statistical standpoint, Steve, that I want to point out: there are only eleven cards in Magic. I'm sorry, in Alpha that use the word "draw" yeah. in today's modern template, and one of them refers to your draw step. That's Mana Vault. Yeah. So there's only 10 cards in Alpha that actually cause you to draw a card. So let me see if I can just rattle them off, because we've named a lot of them. Uh, Time Twister, Howling Mine, Brain Geyser Ancestral, uh, Wheel of Fortune. I've named the Draw 7s. Howling Mine is is critically... We'll get to Howling Mine. It's a critically important card that was used a lot (laughs) in a lot of... You know, for asymmetrical draw. I mean, it became kind of a, a proto... You know, kind of a Sylvan Library type card before Sylvan Library. Um but was also used um, in a lot of different ways. I, I lied. I lied, Steve. There's only nine cards that cause you to draw a card. One of them refers to not drawing a card. <laughs> okay. Well, the the card that does not so, draw a card, I believe, is is Island Sanctuary, right? Skip it. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. that's right. So I said so four more. So that I referred, said five. They actually refer to drawing a card. I said yep. five, and there's four more? Oh, geez. Uh, actually, I think... So you said Ancestral Brain Geyser, Wheel, Twister, Tome. Howling Mine. And Tome. Oh, so that's six then. So you said six. There's three There's more three that refer to others. drawing a card. Well, what's the second best color in terms of drawing a card? Well, oh, it's got to be Lich is one of them. There's one. Yeah. And there's another one in that color, which is another draw oh, seven. Oh, of course, contract from below. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> okay, so the last one, I'm not going to I'm not gonna grill you on it. The last one is Verdurin Enchantment. Oh, of course. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So there's only eight cards, uh, correct myself, in Alpha that actually cause you to draw more cards. That is colossally low, yes. I would say, for a set this size. So, someone, and obviously this set, you've observed it already in this show, but the, this set predates cantrips, which is a yes, big contributing huge. element to this equation. Someone posted yeah. on Twitter, they said, if there's one thing you could change in all of Magic, format, rules, whatever, what would it be? <laughs> and I mean, there are many things that I would potentially change, but I think putting slow trips in alpha would have created a very interesting design change up front. So I think like the laces probably need to be slow trips. You know, potentially <laughs> yeah. some of these yeah. potentially some of these terrible enchant creature effects need to yep. be yep. you need to be either cantrips out, outright or slow trips. But it would have dramatically yeah. changed the power level of those cards that you could play them even in alpha constructed and not just be, you know, screwed if oh, yeah. if if Someone plays swords or the wards. If the wards rewarded you with a card, they'd be so much better in Alpha Constructed. Definitely, right? I mean, imagine uh. that they would be. And they, I think Alpha Constructed would be a lot more interesting, frankly, because then you would have mm-hmm. all this dyna- these dynamics of card size. So Brain Geyser becomes relevant again. Um, you would have like you could you know you need the the ability to cantrip with a ward. First of all, you need to have a creature in play. 
So, but then you would be cycling through your cards more more speedily. Uh, if by the way, if they cantrip with Ver- Verdurin Enchantress, would be the Enchantress deck would be just gangbusters. Just lo- no <laughs> draw, draw, which is I'm fine with that. You know, I'm absolutely oh, yeah. fine with that. Yeah, putting Red Ward on a Verdurin Enchantress would be big Dr- game. Drawing two that cards would be so much fun. Drawing two cards at the time. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I mean, it wouldn't save it from a you know a Chaos Orb. In fact, Chaos Orb would compound the problem. Um, well, artifact creatures would continue to be very prominent in the format, right? Because they sidestep the wards, and they already inherently are, as we'll get to. But naturally, anyway, that's that's one well, thing. We, I w- we've yeah, we've gone pretty far afield on Brain Geyser here. Obviously, drawing cards is just so incredibly formative and- to Magic that. It's this is one of the earliest, earliest ancestors in so many ways. But your point is that it's it's fundamental, but also very precious in limited edition. Yes, exactly. And it's one of the things that cemented blue is so dominant early on, because not only does this draw cards, but it's the only thing really within reason, Lich, notwithstanding James Bay Tome, notwithstanding, it's the only thing that directly scales in terms of how much you can draw. Right. Obviously, part of the reason why James Bay Tome was so dominant is that it scales over time. Yeah. So I don't want to deny that, but Brain Geyser, just the burst of card draw is, aside from draw sevens, which are have their own risks and, and rewards, uh, it, it's just so powerful. Just so powerful. All right. Let's move on to a card that's, you know, less powerful. <clears throat> Burrowing. <laughs> Burrowing is a <laughs> enchant creature for red, and it says target creature gains mountain walk. We touched on most of this already with Bograith vis-a-vis island, uh, land walk. But this does cement, so to speak, red as one of the more, <laughs> actually one of the more dominant landwalk colors <laughs> in hindsight, because you've got two that can grant you mountain walk. But I do want to touch on something that we didn't really examine too strongly, and that is why do colors tend to only have landwalk of their own color? Yeah, in alpha. Yeah, that's not that that's not a given in in future sets, obviously, but. So burrowing, this seems like a textbook top-down design, right? Take a creature, make it go underground like a a unicorn mole, which is what's pictured here, and you suddenly have a creature that can crawl through the mountains. Why it can't crawl through plains or forests is kind of a mystery to me, but hey, that's flavor for you. Steve, have you ever seen this card employed in anything? Never. This card is dying to be a cantrip. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you're right it very much is i wonder i'm gonna do a little bit of quick history lesson here <laughs> when did mountain walk really evolve so if we look at the, the history of mountain walk and i'm not going to drain this topic but if you look at the history of mountain walk according to when it was released into magic right uh oh i've got to look at the, the first printings of cards hold on obviously burrowing and goblin king we've alluded to <laughs> crevasse introduced this concept in legends of Creatures with mountain walk can be blocked as, as if they had as if they did not have this ability, which is hilarious. There's a couple cards in Legends that do that. Legends has another mountain walker in the form of uh, Mountain Yeti, which is fun and flavorful. And mountain walk continues to exist throughout the dark, cave people, goblins of the flarg. So River Merfolk is one of the early examples. It might be one of the earlier ones. I'm not sure of a, a color gaining the land walk ability of its enemy. So this is a blue creature gaining mountain walk, which is noteworthy. But... Otherwise, Mountain Walk just continued to be a tacked-on ability throughout mostly common creatures into Urza's Saga. Urza's Saga has Goblin Spelunkers, which is a 3-mana 2-2 with Mountain Walk. Still pretty boring, right? 
yeah, Mountain Walk is very interesting. It was very. It looks like it was very consistently employed in the early sets up the way up through Masks Block. There's even a common one one Mountain Walker in Odyssey, and then wow. again, a, quite a ways later in Champions of Kamigawa. But there hasn't been a Mountain Walker printed since Mirrodin Besiege. Wow. They just stopped making mountain walking creatures after Mirrodin Besiege. And that was a green creature for some reason. Gliss's Courier, <laughs> 1GG, 2-3 Mountain Walk. So it's bizarre. M- mountain Walk was almost entirely limited to red creatures from Alpha all the way through Champions of Kamigawa. And then the last four creatures printed with Mountain Walk are white, white, red, and white. Or, or green. White, white, red, green. No, wait. The second to last one's not a creature. It's an aura of volcanic strength. The last three creatures with Mountain Walk are white, white, green. And then they stopped making them. That is really interesting. Mountain Walk has just never matured or been on any kind of a good card that I can see throughout its whole history. It has a that long, sad history. It has a long, sad history. Goblin King. I think Mountain Walk peaked in Alpha with Goblin King. <laughs> Definitely. All right. Let's 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 move on to another one of these mystifiers. <laughs> a card called Camouflage. It's an instant for G. It says you may rearrange your attacking creatures and place them face down, revealing which is which only after defense is chosen. If this results in impossible blocks, such as non-flying creatures blocking flying creatures, illegal blockers cannot block this turn. This card is a rules nightmare, obviously, right? The, out, the, the current text is not much better. It says, cast a spell only during their declare attacker's step. It says, your declare attacker's step. This turn, instead of declaring blockers, each defending player chooses any number of creatures they control and divides them into a number of piles equal to the number of attacking creatures for whom that player is the defending player. Creatures those players control that can block additional creatures may likewise be put into additional piles. Assign each pile to a different God. one of those attacking creatures at random. Each creature in a pile that can block the creature that pile is assigned to does so. Good lord. <laughs> they took the spirit of this thing and turned it into a randomization element. Yeah. It says you can rearrange your creatures face down, which is, I guess, intended to be you know a, a shell game. And so they implemented it more literally as a randomization element. You just randomize the defending creatures... And then the blocks that can happen do, and the ones that can't let's, don't. Let's actually imagine this, because it's so weird and abstract. So let, let me just come up with a scenario. So Kevin, six alpha, <laughs> yeah. six alpha creatures. So let's let's include War Mammoth, Iron Claw Orcs. Uh-huh. What would be fun? Uh, we'll do a Mesa Pegasus. Juggernaut. Ju- Juggernaut, Juggernaut a Mesa Pegasus, and then name one other creature. Llanowar Elves. Okay, Llanowar Elves. So, so I have three of those. You have three of those. Give me the three. <laughs> so you are attacking me with a Mesa Pegasus and an Iron Claw Orcs and a Juggernaut. Okay, that sounds reasonable. Okay, now I cast Camouflage. So are we doing this according to Alpha or according Let's to today's rules? Let's do it with Alpha rules? first, and then we'll do it on the regular rules. <laughs> okay, so if, if you're in Alpha and you make that play, you turn your three attacking creatures face down. Okay. And then you, and then you rearrange them, like you shuffle them up, right? So I don't know which is which. Okay. And then so you place you, them face down. So you've got a block now. Yeah. Just, so just make it assign blockers with your war mammoth. And then I assign blockers to your to your three morphs basically that are attacking yeah. me. <laughs> I have And then you and then you just flip your creatures up and we see if the blocks are even so, legal, so, right? So block them. Let's see let's just imagine. So I I, I said I'm attacking you with Juggernaut, 
What were the other two? Uh, Mesa Pegasus and and uh, Iron Claw. Do we say Iron Claw? And Iron Claw orcs. Yeah. Okay. You know, it's more interesting if I have the Iron okay, Claw. Okay, you, you have the Iron actually. Claw. So I have the Mesa Pegasus. Yeah. So you're a Juggernaut and Land World. Okay. Those are your coming three attackers. Coming in, Kevin. Coming so, in. Yeah. So so I line up against the first one. I line up an Iron Claw do, do orcs. It bef- do it before I dec- I cast Camouflage. Oh, okay. Sorry. No, because Camouflage is during the attack. It, it has to be during attackers. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, you, <laughs> so okay. I, I line up Iron Claw orcs against creature A. Okay. And then what other creatures did I have? <laughs> you have War uh, Mammoth? I forget what the other. I line up a War Mammoth against B and then whatever the sixth creature was, which I forgot. Yeah. Okay. I'm just going to scroll and find a random creature. And then I line up Fire Elemental against C. Okay. So Iron Claw orcs A, War Mammoth, B, Fire Elemental C. And my mine are random because I've Yours shuffled them around. Yeah. Okay, so I flip. Uh, you've got you got what blocking a iron claw orcs. So if I That's flip right. over a and it's juggernaut, the juggernaut will kill the iron claw orc. What? Wait, no, hold on. Iron claw orc says, and I quote: <laughs> "Cannot be used to block any creature of power more than one." Oh my god! <laughs> so so that be, that your juggernaut becomes unblocked because I'm not allowed to block with that. Even iron though claw it's orc. declared as a blocker, it becomes unblocked. Right. Oh my god. Right. Okay. And then the, you, the second card is, what, what do you have block, blocking it? War Mammoth. Okay, and I've got a Mesa Pegasus there. Same thing happens. Your, your Mesa Pegasus is now unblocked because okay. a Mammoth can't block a Pegasus. <laughs> this is so bad. Camouflage is so weird. Okay, and then my third <laughs> creature is obviously Lenore Elves, which gets crushed by your uh, by my, Elemental. I don't even remember. My Elemental, yeah. My Fire Elemental. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so... That is, it's incredibly, incredibly weird. It, it, obviously, when creatures have blocking limitations like Ironclaw Orchids, it becomes even far worse, right? But it still plays havoc with situations where both players have some amount of flyers, right? Yeah. If you're swinging in with a team that has one flyer, and I've got a team that has one flyer, it's really hard for me to block your one flyer in that situation. Interesting. But, so, uh, so today, so it, it has some tactical advantage. So today, it's all just randomized, but essentially, it could have the same effect, though, right? Right. It was. I think it was intended to be random. randomized before. The face down part was not meant to be tactical. It was just meant to be random. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, the the thing about this card, though, is this illustration illustrate is this example illustrates is that you don't really have a lot of. It doesn't. It creates chaos. It doesn't create. I mean, I guess. Yes. I guess I could just say I'm just going to attack. If I had just attacked with like left behind, so the camouflage. Does it apply to all attackers? All creatures I control, or just all attackers? It's, it's rearranged your attacking creatures. So if I yeah. only want to attack with the Juggernaut and the Mesa Pegasus, like then you don't know which one is which. How would you defend then? So I only have two creatures attacking. Juggernaut and Mesa yeah, Pegasus. Um, so if it's a Juggernaut and a Mesa Pegasus, my team can't block the Mesa Pegasus at all. Yeah. Which means I want to assume both creatures are Juggernaut and stack enough creatures to up against it. both to, to trade with a Juggernaut. Yeah. So I would put a War Mammoth in front of one, and I would put a Fire Elemental in front of the other stack. There you go. Because that's my there best possible go. outcome. Yeah. Yeah. So then I'll, I, the best outcome for me then is that I probably trade the Juggernaut with your with your Elemental. But yeah, that's right. I don't so I'm still that. I'm You're guaranteeing. The, you control that. Yeah, neither of us control it. No, I don't control <laughs> it either. Neither of us control it. So how is this tactically that. advantageous? Yeah. That's what I'm trying to figure out. It's just, it's not. It's just a chaos thing it's, <laughs> it's it's mostly chaos yeah. i would argue that when other effects are involved it, be, it could become tactically advantageous like if you've got a giant growth yeah and there's only like one good block for you 
Yeah. Or, or, no, let me put it another way. You've got a giant growth, and it becomes has an outsized impact if a, a creature becomes unblocked. That's what it is. If you have one yes. flying creature, if you've got... If you, you uh, want to induce your opponents you, to make an illegal block in some sense. That's right. You, you've got a Sarah Angel, and, and, and I've got a Shivan Dragon, but I'm at seven life, right? Yeah. You can attack with your whole team and camouflage, and then I just have to get lucky that yeah. I block your Sarah with my Shivan. <laughs> random. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but but how do you so, disguise how do you disguise a creature if you have an enchantment on it do you just like pull the enchantment off and just assume it's on it <laughs> yeah that's a really really good question and the answer is probably yeah you just set yeah. the enchantment aside and say okay we remember that this is enchanting this creature. i love that you yeah, say you probably that. <laughs> yeah well no it's true. it's true i mean how do you do anything yeah. right we we've become accustomed to attaching cards to other cards they're not right? technically but the, yeah. the, right the rules of the game don't actually work that way we just do it as a as a you know as a culture so does standard. magic online though it's not us man you know uh, you know, that's a good point. If this card were truly implemented in the original fashion on Magic Online, I don't know how they'd do it. They'd probably obscure the enchantment until the cards were revealed. I wonder if this card that's is really... on Magic Online. <laughs> oh, no, there's almost no way. <laughs> good luck coding that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. That's yeah. funny. So I guess what I wanted to get to no, is... No, in fact, I can, I can guarantee you that it's not Magic Online because it was only printed up until... Um, up until Unlimited. Unlimited, yeah. yeah. And you know what's hilarious is it's not even reserved. No. This this card isn't there's reserved. No, they could put this in, in a set today. It's not been reprinted there, since There's Unlimited. no danger of it being reprinted, so you don't have to. There, there are so... Think about how few cards meet the criteria that this card does. Alpha, Beta, Unlimited, never reprinted since, but also not reserved. Not reserved. That list is very short. That's really interesting. I'm gonna, yeah. I want to see what the population basically, of cards is that about, fits that description. You're basically talking about cards that were discontinued between, between Unlimited and Revised. That's uh-huh. that's it, and the the number and that are not rare. So the the population for that is basically Berserk, which was reprinted. Camouflage. It was reprinted. Consecrate. Yeah, Berserk was reprinted. Consecrate land. Copper artifact. Dwarven demolition team. False orders is a common. Um, yeah. Ice storm was that ever reprinted? I don't think so. I don't think so. No. Icy manipulator was reprinted. Definitely multiple times. Invisibility was that reprinted? <sighs> I I don't think so. Jade statue was reprinted in ninth. Um, yeah, and then there's just a few left. There's oh, invisibility was reprinted. I thought it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah Psionic you're right. blast was reprinted in time spiral and as a promo. As a promo, there were promo and promotional like player rewards. Sin- sinkhole, which was common, and then that's it. Those are the those are the only commons or uncommons that were discontinued between alpha, sorry, between unlimited and revised. Everything else is a rare. That's really, and and a handful of those were reprinted. You know, like Sinkhole was reprinted a couple so, times. So it's Berserk, which has not been reprinted, correct? No, it, no, it has. Berserk was in a, a from the vault. Set. Okay, so let's not count the foil promos because that's kind of. An, I mean, like, so so. Well, actually, Berserk was also in other sets. It was it was in Conspiracy. Okay, it was in Magic. So it's it's yeah. Camouflage, Consecrate Land, Copper Tablet, Dwarven Demolition Team, False Orders, Ice Storm. And that is it. Those cards, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty exclusive club. The five then. or six that's cards. Yeah, how weird. I never really considered that fact. I just assumed that all these mystifiers were also reserved. Are we <laughs> sure that why not? The right? copper tablets never been reprinted. That seems like a very basic card. 
It really is basic, isn't it? I was just looking, in fact, because I thought that seems odd to me. The only time it's been reprinted was in Master's Edition Online. Wow. Amazing. Yeah, so it was put it was put into online alpha, and alpha, uh, vintage. But yeah, aside from that, the last paper printing of Copper Tablet was unlimited. So so camouflage is for people who who, who want to do chaos or are not interested in tactical advantages. Although it, it does have, <laughs> I mean, because it's just, it's too hard to control to, to guarantee a tactical advantage. And you need a really, yeah. a really interesting, diverse set of threats, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Interesting. Also card. noteworthy that this is an instant, and so you can respond to it by killing the creature you'd most hate to yeah. screw it up on. It has to be you know? an instant, but yes. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> Actually, you know what's funny? I just now realized. <laughs> we have no conception of... <laughs> so it says, in the alpha version, you may rearrange your attacking creatures, place them face down, uh, revealing which is only after defense is chosen. And I don't... I'm not intimately familiar with how the steps and phases of the turn worked in the alpha rule book but isn't there a point at which you have resolved camouflage and you have a set of face down attackers and then i can play spells before i've blocked probably probably yeah in which case how do you cast a spell that has a targeting requirement oh god like yeah well in alpha though we've talked about modal spells right but in Alpha, oh, there was no such thing as target... Like, Blue Elemental Blast doesn't target a red card like it does today, right? Destroy target red permanent today, but in Alpha, it didn't do that. Well, you, Similarly, Terror, terror, which only destroys a black or you know a non-black, non-artifact creature, doesn't have that as a targeting requirement. You know, that, that, we're going to get to the Alpha wording, but I can tell you it doesn't. there's no such thing as a targeting requirement like that as there is in modern day. It says, destroy target creature without possibility of regeneration does not affect black creatures or artifact creatures. Yeah. So all, all it says in the alpha rulebook about the attack step in the main phase is you may make one attack against your rival with any or all of your creatures in play except those that came into play this turn. Um, I think there's another, hold on. <laughs> your rival. Love it. Love it. <laughs> the attack. Okay, there is a <laughs> section on the attack. It says the turn sequence of an, for an attack is as follows. Step one, player declares an attack. Step two, opponent declares defense. Step three, fast effects. Step four, dealing damage. Sorry, damage dealing. And then mm-hmm. it has a, a description of that. So so fast effects is called out yes, only at one point, which suggests there's defense. no priority between attackers or exactly. blockers. Exactly. It does say... It, and, and do, you, there's a, do you play that way in Alpha League? It doesn't really come up. you know. So, so I'm looking fast effects. I'm looking... There's a, it actually breaks it down. And then it says... It, it explains each of these these uh, s- steps in the in the combat. the The step on fast effects. Well, I'll just read the whole thing because it's not that long. It says, "Player mm-hmm. declares attack to attack. First, indicate which creatures are attacking. Walls and tap creatures may not may not attack, and the creature that did not start play in your territory may not attack. Opponent declares <laughs> defense. After you announce your attack, your rival chooses the defense, including indicating which defense creature is is defending creature is blocking which attacking creature. There's a little bit more to it. Then it says, yeah. then it says fast effects. After the defender has declared, finished declaring blocking, both the attacker and the defender can use enchantments or artifacts in play, instants or interrupts to affect the outcome of the battle. You may also use fast effects during the attack and defense declarations, even though this phase is set aside for that purpose. Oh my god. So it says, wow. God, that's that last <laughs> sentence. I was so good with it until that last sentence. <laughs> Jesus. I know. Oh. That's really hilarious. So, so so here's the problem. Let me just so for like suppose a creature has like a 
I don't know, a red ward on it, right? And you've uh-huh. camouflaged the creature with the red ward. And you declare right. attacks, and the opponent goes lightning bolt creature A, right? Yep. I don't flip it all up until def- defense. So right. what do you do? <laughs> it's, com- it's completely undefined, yeah. basically, the answer to that question. There's no answer in Alpha for what you do in that situation. Yeah, that's that's screwed up. Wow. that's It's just broken. <laughs> the ga- the Alpha is yep. just, just broken. Alpha's just broken. <laughs> yep. It's not the first time. It won't be the last. <laughs> well said. I think if I was designing league rules, I would say uh, that... Jeez, what what would you? you could uh, you, well you could errata camouflage pretty clearly to say, you know, you flip it up if it's affected by a spell. That's basically what mask does, right? So I would probably use the yeah. same thing as mask. I would say that the controller of the face down card needs to check to see whether that effect is le- is a valid target. That's spe- the yeah. spell or effect. So if it had like protection from blue and your opponent pings it with a prodigal sorcerer or pirate ship, I think the controller needs to check. It's still disguised, but they have to declare, like with Illusionary Mask, whether it's a legal target or not. <laughs> That's so messed up, because then what do you do if it's illegal? You back up? Yeah. Or, uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, well, obviously there's no good answer, but... Well, then you have to... Then, and that's why then this it, card's not worded Well, it triggers a separate question, which is how does protection work in, in Alpha? I would probably go with the rule that it just right. fizzles. You know. Oh, that's a fair point, yeah. In the Alpha interpretation, it's, it's impossible to know. God... Wow. Yeah, well, there's a good reason why this card's never been reprinted. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. This was fun. That was wow. fun talking about it, though. Wow. Camouflage. Awesome. Uh, I think we're going to have a, a, a related conversation when we get to false orders. Okay. So anything no, else on camouflage? <laughs> All right. Uh, all right, so let's move on to Castle. We've already alluded to Castle in our coverage of pumping and white. Uh, so this is an enchantment. It's 3W. It says... <laughs> Your untapped creatures gain plus zero, plus two. Attacking creatures lose this bonus. Uh, this is another of several examples throughout history, Steve, where we have inexplicable power level errata on a card. Oh, really? That, that, yeah, just can't be explained. Yeah, because the modern text of Castle says untapped creatures you control get plus one, plus, or plus zero, plus two. It does not have the attacking creatures lose nice. this bonus part. Nice. Yeah. So the, so the power level errata, the, Reason version is more powerful than the alpha. It's usually the opposite. It's usually things are powered down, not powered up. That's right. I, I well, and go ahead. and also interestingly, the the um the effect of not attacking was actually codified and printed on the card all the way up to fifth edition. And then they changed it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, fourth edition, so all the way up funny. to fourth edition. That's so after fourth no, edition. Fifth, they're like, the you know what? Edition. We're just going to get rid of that clause. <laughs> We want- so let me tell you, the, the printed 5th edition version of Castle says each untapped creature you control gains plus 2, plus 0, unless it is attacking. And the next printing of, of Castle, which is 6th edition, says just says the modern text. God. Untapped creatures you control get plus 1, that, plus 0. So somewhere between 5th and 6th edition, edition, they decided to just change this, this so card. Strange. That is so strange. I mean, so I, I, there's, a, there's only a few things I want to say about this card. Yeah, I I rem- this card was one of the first cards I remember in Magic. It really imprinted on me, and I think what I th- so I used to love when I was a kid. I used to love the ca- Lego Castle. You know, I forget what the specific term, but the Lego you know the Lego brand. Yeah, oh they yeah, had castles so with the with knights the knights and, and the yeah, horses. I loved all oh that. yeah, that was my favorite version. I like space. I like city, but castles was my favorite. You know the the building the castles. I had like Black Monarch's castle and all these really like midnight you know eighties <laughs> castles. Still do, but um, 
this card really imprinted in my mind. It's like saying, okay, this is signaling to you what white is about. And what white is about is about mm-hmm. defense, and it also is signaling what magic is about, that it's a fantasy flavor-themed game. And it, oh, this yeah. card really crystallizes that in a simple image with a simple card title with a simple ability. And I, I'm irritated, actually, by the fact that, that, that they changed that from 5th to 6th because that loses that theme of defense. You know, that castling... The castle here is this yeah. really defensive thing that you're, you know, you, that you're going into the castle to defend yourself and that your creatures are situated in the castle to get extra defense. That's annoying that they actually changed that from fifth to six. I say go back to the original alpha version on castle to retain that thematic flavor. I'm totally all, I'm all the way there with you and I couldn't have said it better. There's another element I'd like to add to what you said about the, the theme and flavor here and that is, this is actually part of a through line in Alpha for codifying white as the color of infrastructure <laughs> and, by association, the color of society. Interesting, Because white has, in addition to castle, white has farmstead and island sanctuary. Yes. Of, above all the colors, white is really the color of putting its people in the context of a society and... And there's also other contexts too, like, you know, white has knights and other things, but other colors kind of have some of those elements. But this is the only color that actually refers to infrastructure that puts a, a creature or a thing in its place in the world, so to speak. I love that in the, in the color pie. Yeah. That's interesting. That's cool. Yeah. Great observation. So anything else on Castle? No, it's a pretty cool one. We've already touched on some of the themes and reasons I'm why. Almost iconic. If it was card- a better card, it would be iconic. Uh, you, you make a fair point. You, yeah, absolutely. It just so happens that it's it's too much mana for its effect by today's standards, right? There's a reason why it hasn't been print, printed again in years. Um, and the, the other power pumping things are just far more relevant. Yeah, for it's it's actually funny formats. that you point that out. I mean, Crusade and Blood Moon cost half as much. If yeah, this cost for an arguably better effect, yeah. Right? If this just cost white one, I wonder if this would have a you know a more more relevance. Yeah, yeah it'd be more relevant. Time. Yeah. This next card is an interesting one, not necessarily because of its power, but because of all the precedents it sets for various reasons throughout the set and for rules. It's Celestial Prism. (laughs) This card costs three generic mana. It is a mono artifact, and the text is two colon provides one mana of any color. This use can be played as an interrupt. Is this a common or now, uncommon? We, I can't remember. I think it's an uncommon. It's un, it's uncommon, yeah. yeah. So I want to point out a couple of things that we've previously mentioned, but uh, the functionality of mono artifact implies tapping. So the fact that the alpha text doesn't actually have tap in it is not a surprise. The, the tapping part is yes. implied. So you have, do have to tap this to use it, which is why there's no tap symbol or word in the text, but it's still required. And also I want to just point out, and I'll let you run with this, Steve, the fact that this is on the very short list of things in alpha that makes... Any oh, color of yeah. mana, right? And we we reference this already in our Birds of Paradise discussion. So yeah. this is just a kind of a point of comparison. There. Well, so there's so much to say about this card. Uh, it's obviously the the very first version of like what you would call mana fixing, you know. Um, and there's right. just you know a long lineage to these kinds of effects. <laughs> they go in different. Fortunately, every single one of them is better than yeah, this. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's what that's what I was driving at. So and there's different ver- ver- iterations of them. There's you know the the mana rocks. There's the uh, the chromatic sphere, chromatic star. There's the gilded lotus. Oh, yeah. There's the you know, which is kind of a, mic- a hybrid of, of lotus and this. You know, there's the um, the different kinds of 
of of rocks. There's the you know the ones that tap for what is it like um, two colors? I think there might even be a three color version. I'm not sure. You probably know better than I. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, there's definitely all versions, but the a prototypical example is the signets from Ravnica, yes. which turn one generic mana into a dyad of of different colors, and there's a whole cycle of ten of them. Right. This is the progenitor for that whole cycle, right. and many like it. And I think mana fixing is really important in Alpha because if you just get if you went to Gen Con in 1993. And you just got like I don't know like two a starter deck and a couple of packs or maybe two starter decks to build a deck. You might be forced to play three colors to build a forty card deck, you know, because you have so much right. land. Like the Celestial Prison might be important to help you cast an important spell. I think that they made a fundamental mistake with this card, and it's not the mana cost, it's not the activation cost. I think the fundamental mistake was making it a mono artifact instead of a poly artifact. I think. Oh, yeah, and there's plenty of modern interpretations of this card that have the same effect without the tap, right? There's a creature, I don't know how it sets back, called Prismite, which just has the ability of two colon, get a mana right. of any color. I think two mana to get a one mana of any color is perfectly fine as many times as you want. Why Why make this mono? That's the strangest <laughs> thing to me, right? The pri- I'm with you. I mean, It's bizarre. Yeah, I mean, the artifacts in the set, there's lots and lots of poly artifacts, you know, but this one, the mono artifacts are kind of the things, frankly, if you look at the mono, artif- mono artifacts versus the poly artifacts, the mono artifacts are things like Icy Manipulator, Jam Day Tome, Disrupting Scepter, Classes of Urza, things where you don't, you don't really want your opponent to do that multiple times. But the poly artifacts are things like, you know, the, the Charms, Jade Monolith, um, you know, there are things, there's a kind of in-between case, which is Helm of Chatsuk, which I guess is kind of like this, but Helm of Chatsuk is not exactly the kind of card, you don't, my guess is that you don't need to give like a ton of creatures banding, you know. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's probably like it's good enough just to give it to one because banding is very powerful. But this to me seems like it would fall into the to the poly artifact list that I just gave you. You know, it's it seems more well, to me like a um, like a jade monolith than than or a charm than a uh, rod of ruin or disrupting scepter. How does it strike you? So I, I cannot disagree with you in any stretch of the word. Don't get me wrong. But the notion, the thing that you're alluding to in terms of having a continuous filtering source for mana was not introduced for a long time in Magic. I think, I, I'm not sure, there wasn't anything in Legends that did it. I think the first cards in um, in Magic just coming you know in order of printing that actually allowed you to exchange mana on a on a conversion basis without tapping i think it was in fallen empires fallen empires yeah. i think it was initiative the yeah. other hand was the first card that did this so I, I, i'm doing a quick cursory search and i think i'm correct so this notion that you've got a just converting mana from one to another with an ability is was not even considered for years, right? Yeah. I, and the closest thing to it we get until we get to initiates of the Ebon Hand was, um, well, I think it's an alpha, actually. I think the closest thing you get to it is Sunglasses of Urza. Interesting. Yeah. Word. I wonder if the reason... And, and associated conversion effects, but that's not the same model that you're, that you're targeting. I, I wonder if the reason they wanted to make this tap is because of the, the fact that you can be played at interrupt speed. And that interrupt, you know, responding to interrupt over and over again could be could be confusing. Maybe that's why they did it well, that way. Confusing, sure. Yeah, because it's like, sure. okay, uh, you play an interrupt. Okay, I'm going to respond with re- tapping. I'm going to use this and then play an interrupt with the man I used to do this. And then you play another interrupt. And then I use this again. 
You know, because you need two, basically two interrupts to respond to your opponent's interrupt. And maybe they, did, they just wanted to make that not, not so complicated. But I really strongly feel that this should be a poly and not mono artifact. Um, yeah. The other thing, is, uh, so you. it's interesting that they, they didn't really give you that in a continuous way until initiates, until a year, over a year later. The other thing is that this art is simplistic and interesting and kind of a cool, it's kind of like a reading rainbow image here. But the, the <laughs> prism part, which is the underside of the initial ray, is, is purple. So the background has a non-contrasting effect with the underside of the prism. I don't know if that's intentional <laughs> or not, but it, it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't strike me as, is the way they envisioned it. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Well, in, in my estimation, there's no denying the fact that this art was not intended to be photo real. Right? <laughs> yeah, of course not. I mean, I mean, as a symbol, even. But yeah, fair enough. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> but the, the point the, the point you're making about the fact that it's not impacting the surrounding at all, I think. It, while it's absolutely true, I think it's more to do with the fact that this, like so many other arts <laughs> in Alpha, is just a subject devoid of context. Fair enough. Right. It's but not it, so much about the the effect of the light, but more so the fact that there's just nothing else going to be in this art other than the object here. That was funny. But uh, yeah, a prism is supposed to be changing one color into other colors or different colors. So anyway, that, it doesn't have to do that. But Well, and I would point out, too, that the artist here is Amy Weber, who has 16 cards in Alpha, <laughs> and that's awesome. Yes. Amy Weber's done some classics. Most of her pieces are devoid of context, like many of her peers at the time. In fact, it's it's the exception. Cards of hers that have any kind of background or context are the exception. Fair many enough. of them are just in a blank colored space. Like Warp Artifact is the same thing. And in fact, it's almost exactly the same purple. It's just a thing in a in a color splash. If you were playing Copper Kyber Tablets the same way. Yeah, if I think I think this card is good enough that I was pl- if I was playing limited limited edition i would consider playing this card if i need if my color was really inconsistent if i especially if i was playing a third color i would like maybe i have a dual land you know like i got a rare dual land and i'm splashing for a very powerful card like a fireball you know but i'm playing blue green yeah i could imagine playing like the dual land and splashing this and maybe one basic of the other color would you do that or would you just play another, another mountain (laughs) <laughs> I'd have to look at all the other cards I've got, right? Like how the mana cost distribution of the cards I've got is. There are so many cards in uh, limited edition at common that require multiple mana, right? Yeah. All the, the big creatures, yeah. the elementals in red and blue and, and the crawl worm too. Even at common, they require a commitment to that color and that makes the third color with no fixing really challenging. Yeah, and this just so costs one I more think, mana to get the right color. So, <laughs> Yeah, and I think that... This card's highly inefficient by today's standards. There's no two ways about it, but your conclusion is possibly still correct in the context of a, a limited alpha environment. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> the notion, like you said up top, and I, I don't want to drain this topic because we've already touched on it, but the notion of providing a mana of any color, of a chosen color, is limited to only three cards in alpha, and one of those is Black Lotus, yes. right? Yeah. Once you get past rares, Lotus and Bob, don't have a lot of mana. This is at all. Well, this is literally the only thing that does it. That that lets you choose a color, right? You've got a you've got a a cycle of well nine turn ten rare duels, and then you've got Birds of Paradise and Lotus. And there's an asterisk around Birds of Paradise, which we'll get to later. (laughs) We we already touched on that one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So this is it in terms of mana fixing at the common or uncommon slots. 
this is it. There was just not a priority for this set. I think they were banking. I think Richard Garfield was banking on the fact that difficulty casting spells of colors was a design choice. And obviously we've gotten further yeah, afield of that. That's frustrating for people. People don't want to have that. Design. Yeah. Exactly. But from a game balance standpoint, it was a feature, not a bug. Got it. Well, we, we're far past that in the era of fetch lands. <laughs> we're far past oh, that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, the next one's a real biggie, Kevin. Oh, gosh. And it, the hits just keep on coming. So this is channel. For green green, it's a sorcery. It says, until end of turn, you may add colorless mana to your mana pool for one life each. These additions are played with the speed of an interrupt. Life spent this way is not considered damage. So so obviously this is part of a, probably the most famous two-card combo in history of magic. Yeah, absolutely. If you were to pick a two-card combo to represent magic, <laughs> this is at the top of that list, in my opinion. Channel Fireball. Um, the card is immensely powerful. It's still Is it the only green restricted card in Vintage today, if I'm not mistaken? Because Fastbond and Regrowth have been unrestricted. So that tells you how powerful it is. The only green card yeah. in Vintage. <laughs> it's restricted. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's pretty noteworthy. Um, I I really enjoy this card in Alpha. I I will conf- so one of the things I love about it is that there are so many good artifact spells that you can play with it. So you can play Channel and, and roll out Juggernauts and roll out mm-hmm. uh, icy manipulators and Chaos Orb and Jade statues and things like that. So I have a cool alpha deck that can do that. It has five channels in it, Kevin. It's pretty broken. <laughs> and the channel continues to be like they, this, unlike something like Brain Geyser, right? This is rarefied air in terms of this effect. Yeah. This is not anything like Brain Geyser where we've seen different interpretations, right? That have touched yes, on this in different this flavors. Oh, no. <laughs> this notion emulated. of turning your life. Yeah, your life into mana is very dangerous, and they <laughs> learned their lesson fast after Channel. One of my favorite uses of this card, though, was in the, I think it was the 2004 Vintage Championship, Kevin, when Michael yeah. Simister rolled into the top four <laughs> with Goblin Charbelcher, with, it was like, uh-huh. that had Elvish Spirit Guides, and what was so cool about that is that he could use two, an Elvish Spirit Guide, a Simeon Spirit Guide, and a land, or just, you know, whatever, and get through trinisphere and cast channel and then cast the the uh the goblin charbelcher and activate it immediately that was sweet very very powerful very cool very very cool that's probably one of my favorite contemporary vintage nat mose wants this to be unbanned unrestricted so badly um (laughs) it's ridiculous i mean in in contemporary vintage you can also use it just to cast emrakul and when you cast emrakul you get the time walk effect, which is why it also appeared as a one-off in those um, those oath decks from time to time, like the uh, what's it called, Golden Gun yeah. Oath, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. The- this notion of I, I just want to give a little history context. This notion of kind of unrestricted paying life for mana, it has been reprinted a couple of times but with much, much stronger limitations, not just variants. Like, there's a card from Conspiracy called Treasonous Ogre, which is almost a hill giant. It's 3R for a 2-3. It has pay 3 life, colon, add R to your mana pool. That's like some Ancestral Recall to Brainstorm amount of depowering, right? There's another example from Oath of the Gatewatch, Kozilek's Translator. 
4B for a 3-5 creature. It says pay one life, add wingdings to your mana pool, activate this ability only once each turn. <laughs> right? So, yeah, and, not even and that's close it. To... That, like, that's the pinnacle of this effect wow. in terms of closeness to channel. Yeah, I mean, e- so, yeah, I mean, both Fastbond and Regrowth, the other two restricted cards, have tons of emulations. You know, Fastbond right, is Exploration, right. Mana Bond, uh, Explore. Yeah, uh, yeah. Ancestor Recall has more subsequent variants than Channel ever has Channel will, is an iconic right? one of. They just decided, <laughs> we're going to stay away from that. <laughs> it would pro- Can you even imagine trying to design a fixed channel? Be like, green, green, five... <laughs> no, green, green, green. I don't know. But, but the funniest part about that is that the the more you tack mana onto the effect, the more inapplicable it yeah, is, right? It's true. What do you need to cast? You've resolved a, a five or six mana, you know, dark ritual. What do you need to cast right. with your five or six I mana think, dark ritual? I think the problem is, is any fixed version of it that's playable is probably still too broken. You know, it's that's the problem. It's like Necropotence or Ancestral in that regard. Yeah. Just can't fix it. The funny part is the fixed like necropotence call- is lich. <laughs> <laughs> that that is not true. I know, I know. <laughs> I'd like to call back to something we've talked about on the show a handful of times, and that is the notion that one way to quantify power in the whole system that is magic is zone changes. Yes. Right. This card has nothing to do with zone changes. Well, you cast spells, but the effect doesn't have anything to do with zone changes. However, a very close cousin to zone changes is resource conversion. Yes. And anything that converts resources as efficiently as a card like this does is also inherently powerful. And life to mana is is one of those kind of conversions, yeah, that is just highly problematic. Yeah. I used to call them siphons. Like Psychotog, Necropotence, and Channel are three great siphons. Psychotog turns cards into into power. Necropotence, Mm -hmm. life into cards. And Channel, life into mana. Just all do it super directly. And almost every card that does that on a one-for-one one basis historically is too powerful. Yes. Without, without almost, any, almost every case. Yeah. Without any additional cost to doing it, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, for, for no mana, yeah. Yeah, the conversion for free yep. is, is problematic. I, there's one small, subtle thing about Channel that's interesting, which is that, that in, in alpha rules, you can use this as an interrupt, which means that if you've cast Channel, right, in your first main phase, your, your main phase, the Channel goes to the graveyard. Right. And for the rest of your yeah. main phase, including, including theoretically during combat. Oh, it's, it's until the end right. of turn. Yeah. Right. Which means yeah. that this is interesting. It interrupts speed. Right. Which means that yeah. you can do things that interrupt speed. So it's like, okay, I'm going to, um, add a bunch of mana, you know, uh, so it's like, so let me try and create a scenario here. Um, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't <laughs> include that part in this podcast, but. I, I let me just state it this way instead of instead of that. I think it might create okay. some interesting in-game scenarios, Kevin, and it hasn't come up for me yet. Where you could you could play ch- like okay, here's an example. Let's say I cast channel and I want to play a disrupting scepter, a juggernaut, and a jade statue. Okay, and mm-hmm. uh, let's assume we're under just alpha rules itself, where you can activate the jade statue immediately. Now, Alpha League doesn't do that, but it, it's actually in 1993, Dave Howell clarified that you can actually attack with Jade Statue the turn you play it. That, at least that's how it was played in 1993. So you could use a channel in your combat phase to attack with Jade Statue, and then you could decide, depending on what happens, right? Maybe you want to cast a Power Sync and use the channel to play Power Sync, but let's say 
before you go to your you know end step, you could decide to activate disrupting scepters. So chan- channel can give you some flexibility in terms of it doesn't doesn't commit you to playing everything up front. You can see right. how the turn unfolds and then decide maybe I'll fireball, maybe I'll activate disrupting scepter, maybe I'll use to pay a re- play around a power sink because you can do it in interrupt speed. So you can generate life to pay around a power sink, which is very interesting. It gives a lot of flexibility in a way that's not not too common in alpha. Yes. Right? Right. Especially since the card is in your graveyard by the time you're making all these decisions. <laughs> it's very weird. <laughs> yeah, there there are plenty of effects in alpha that last until end of turn. You know, it's all the power and toughness changing and all that jazz, right? Right. But this notion of of you having just another ability that you could do until end of turn is entirely unique to channel. Right. Well, so here's another wrinkle. So you could use activations of the charms with channel and then repurpose the life you gain through the charms to do something else with channel. I don't know if that gets you any productivity, but you might be able to get productivity out of it somehow. Yeah. Uh, Alpha doesn't have a lot of engine cards. Like, there's no thing that looks for you when you pay life that I can think of. So there might not be a way to make that productive, but it's it's interesting to note. Also, a bit of trivia here, Steve, that is apropos of nothing, really. But the there the last two cards we reviewed, Celestial Prism and Channel, have a card that came later in Invasion that is basically their love child. And that card is Phyrexian Lens, which yes. is a three mana artifact. Tap, pay one life, add one mana of any color to your mana pool. Right. <laughs> so it's kind of like if Channel and, and Celestial Prism had a baby and made a much better card. A much better card than Celestial Prism, I should say. Yeah. it's a good point. All right. We're going to start accelerating here, Steve, because we're going to get into a chunk of cycles here that we don't have to talk permanently about. But next up is Chaos Lace. A single red mana for an interrupt will get you changes the color of one card either being played or already in play, to red. Cost to cast, tap, maintain, or use a special ability of target card remains entirely unchanged. Well, we've already teased out a whole bunch about this card, Steve. Uh, where do you want to begin on the laces in general, on this one in particular? Well, I, I think there's an observation that the design... So th- the original name of Magic was called Five Magics. I think that in Richard Garfield's conception... The color identity of a card was pretty significant. Mm-hmm. I think the laces were designed to be fairly significant for that reason. Um, and I think in his mind, also sleight of mind and there's a sleight of mind, sleight of mind and magical hack were designed to be larger, loom larger as well. I think experience has shown that this this kind of effect is extremely marginal. Um, so I think we what we can say about the laces is that they're probably the worst cycle of rares. Probably the worst, maybe even the worst cards next to the wards in the entire set. Certainly at rare. But mm-hmm. here's here's what I think is interesting. I think this might be the best of the laces. So try and evaluate mm-hmm. which of the laces is the best. So obviously, the the black one has the advantage of Im- immunizing potential cards from terror. But what yep. makes, I think, Chaos Lace so powerful is that besides Channel Fireball... There's another very powerful two-card combo in this set. Do you know which combo I'm talking about? You mean a, a like a two-card kill combo? Yes. Win, kill your it, opponent? It doesn't automatically win, but it's it's very powerful. No, which one are you talking about? 
Orcish Artillery and COP Red. Oh, yeah, that's a fun one. Very, once it gets going, you, you, it's very hard to win unless you pick off the artillery because they can just take out all of your creatures and attack with their own or just start hitting you. I mean, you get two or three artillery in play and a COP red and you're dead in a few turns. Oh, yeah. So I think Chaos Lace, I've seen Chaos Lace used in the red-white combo deck version of that because obviously you have COP red, so you can turn your opponent's best creatures red. COP red is the best COP, therefore Chaos Lace is probably the best of the laces. But there's really not much more I can say about, beyond that. I think the the <laughs> only other thing that's notable about the laces is they might be excellent in constructing some sort of extreme magic the puzzling scenario. <laughs> yeah. Well, and obviously, you've already teased out a whole bunch of examples. I want to reinforce the fact that circle protection red is the best circle of protection. I think that is true as an absolute statement for a couple of different reasons, but really high on the list is just the direct damage spells, right? Your your Alpha 40 League deck is a perfect example of why that is, right? Because Fireball is just an incredibly overpowered effect in the context of just Alpha, and it's not just Fireball. You've also got Disintegrate and Earthquake and yep. so and, and Lightning Bolt. And so just at face value, the notion of a circle of protection protecting you from, say, white or blue <laughs> pales in comparison to the the color that's going to direct damage you, drain life notwithstanding. So that much is clear to me, and it makes a whole bunch of sense. And so conversely, cards that attack red also get bolstered uh, by implication. Like Blue Elemental Blast, I think is yes. Probably it's it's not as underrated in the abstract as other color hosing counter spells might be at face value. It's it's much better than you think it is in the context of just alpha. Yet another and, good reason for good use for Chaos Lace. Now it costs two spells, yeah, but, but you can hey. destroy anything in play, any target. Just turn it red and that's, and that's right. You built yourself a it. desert twister, <laughs> and, and and in a way that red blue as a pairing, wouldn't be able to do otherwise. You know, ironically, it gives red and blue a way to destroy Circle of Protection red. (laughs) (laughs) Which, aside from disc, they wouldn't really be able to do, right? Yep. The best lace. I would would be interested to talk to Richard Garfield about the design intent of the laces to, to the points you already made. But just from the standpoint of, you know, this set has cards like, for example, Northern Paladin which is a color-hosing destruction yes. card. Now, that's Death not... grip, life yeah, waste, yeah. That's right. Th- that's right. So there's all these examples of hosers. We've said this already in this review, but there's a, the, the, they, we're not playing around with hosers in Alpha, right? There's straight-up destruction in the form of the Paladin. There's straight-up counter spells in the form of the, the, the two grips that you just said. The, the presence of laces suggests that it was one of their purposes was to amplify the efficacy of those hate cards. And the simple truth is, is that combining uh, Chaos Lace or any of them with some of these effects makes those effects just really overpowered, makes them universally applicable, such that you can put a Northern Paladin in any deck, right? And with the appropriate laces, it just becomes a Vindicate on a stick. Mm-hmm. And that's that's just really powerful. Yeah. And so uh, I... I don't want to assume, but my implication is is that was all intended design and intended emergent gameplay from putting these very simplistic pieces in the set. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. I think that the the, the, the conception of magic was that it would be interlocking pieces that had synergies with each other. 
And the laces were just part of that concept of throwing in things that could be used together mm-hmm. in much the way that you just outlined. Mm-hmm. So there you have it. By the way, in terms of the artwork, I don't <laughs> think this is I don't think this is the best of the artworks on the laces, the lace cycle though. <laughs> no, this one is very abstract. And oddly, while there is red in the art, it is, in my opinion, not evocative of turning something red at all. Right. It is an ab- an abstract piece it's of art that you might... It's more chaos than... Yeah. It, you're right. It's more evocative of chaos than it is redness. And it could be that the art direction was simply focused on chaos rather than redness. Maybe they said it's a red spell, but it's chaotic. And that's maybe that's all that Damien got. Well, there was a card called Chaos in the playtest sets be- before Gamma that they removed in Gamma that was like a red spell that shuffled all the cards in play and redistributed them among players. Uh- I think I remember hearing about that before. They ultimately that card was printed in the loose way that you just described it as Warp World, and there's been some other variants since then. But uh, that's interesting. I hadn't remembered that. The artist here is Damian Willich. Interesting to note that the this is one cycle where uh, different artists did the cards. Damian only did one of the laces. And interestingly, while Damian did several cards in Alpha, it looks like he did fifteen by my eyes in Alpha. And then a few more in Arabian Nights. He didn't work for Wizards, or for Magic at least, past Ice Age. And his artwork changes dramatically over those few sets. If you look at his alpha art, there's a lot of abstract concepts, very simple shapes for the most part. As you go through, his art gets far more photoreal in Arabian Nights and and then into Ice Age. It's really interesting, the progression of his art. Anyway, we shall move on. Next up is well, Kevin. Just I want to ask, what's a prominent example of Damian Willich's work in 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 Arabians? What's your favorite? Oh yeah, so a a version that I he did the two horse cards. He did Ebony Horse and Jandor's Saddlebags. Nice, those are and very Jandor's nice. Jandor's Saddlebags has a very photoreal kind of feel to it. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. I would never have guessed the same artist if you'd line them up. Say, guess which artist. <laughs> yeah, of the Chaos Lace. Did this. Yeah, and Jandor's Saddlebags. You'd never guess. I completely agree. All right, let's move on to one card that is unique. It's just really, really unique throughout Magic's history, <laughs> even to today. And that, is, of course, is Chaos Orb. It's two mana. It's a mono artifact. One, colon, flip Chaos Orb onto the playing area from a height of at least one foot. Chaos Orb must turn completely over at least once, or it is discarded with no effect. When Chaos Orb lands, any cards in play that it touches are destroyed, as is Chaos Orb. Dexterity cards, Steve. This is the progenitor (laughs) for dexterity cards, a thing that grew briefly in Magic and then rapidly receded, and I think for the better. This card I have mixed feelings about because while there's ableist uh, issues going on here, the card, when you're able to, is quite fun, and it evokes quite exciting gameplay moments. And unfortunately, though, because of the dexterity issues, it had to be modified to be usable in a modern context. Within that frame, I think it's a cool card, but it loses a lot of its flavor, in my opinion, when the dexterity elements are removed. Obviously, you play this card a lot, and I've played it for different reasons than you a lot, and it has a lot of cultural associations in my mind, but uh, I don't want to dominate the conversation. So what do you think? Those are all interesting points and good points. So I think that this card may be the single coolest card in Magic. 
<laughs> certainly in the in the the upper echelon and there's i think there's one really important reason why so it is it is definitely the case that it is an ableist card and it's also the case that it's a skill dexterity is a skill in and of itself mm-hmm. uh, there was an amazing moment at the wizards tournament actually it was at noobcon last year 2019 where brian weissman and will mcgran were about to draw a match of magic they they had they were, they were playing their respective strategies and they had come to a point where the game was about to be a draw. The match was about to be a draw. And they just, Brian Weissman had no idea who Will McGran is. And Will. <laughs> I love this story. So the, the match is about to be a draw. Brian offers Will a deal that they'll do a chaos orb flip off to decide who wins the match. This is Brian Weissman. You know, mm-hmm. the man who. <laughs> Who is the definition of the old school player and is, of course, an expert in chaos orbs. Little did he know, however, that Will McGran <laughs> has a old school patch for most consecutive chaos orbs <laughs> in old school magic communities. And so actually <laughs> is the best, possibly the best chaos orb flipper in the world. Uh-huh. I asked him about it, and he told me that he wakes up in the morning, instead of doing push-ups, does chaos orb flips. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Brian Weissman, of course, lost to his chagrin the match, and therefore the, that you know that record. Um, it was a very interesting match, by the way, between the, their two decks. But I'll tell you why I think chaos orb is so cool. I think the main thing that gives chaos orb its incredible ca- at cult- cultural cachet. Well, let me begin. It's not the main thing, but the first thing to point out is just the art. Yeah. The art is just amazing. People <laughs> love this art. It's iconic in a way that that is hard to duplicate. You can't just make something that's cool. You have to make something that's cool and unique. And Chaos or of like a, a, a brain that's barfing vol- lava into a, you don't even know what, some <laughs> subterranean cavern or something. It's just so incredibly... Right. <laughs> It's it's visually stunning and it's it's in stunning in a way that you cannot easily forget. You know, yeah. once you've seen it, it encodes, right? And so it makes it that's something that's I think a quality of iconicness. And it's also so unique. But the the main thing that I think gives it its cultural attaché is that it's a card that you cannot play on Magic Online. It can never be fully <laughs> ported to the digital environment, the digital world. And I think that there's that fact combined with the fact that it's been banned in Paper Magic and Vintage in all of Paper Magic under sanctioned events since 1996 for the ableist reasons that we mentioned and also the impossibility of adjudicating it in a you know, in a non-casual setting. Yeah, that you're going to have interminable disputes about what happened and you need a, essentially a third party judge or referee or arbitrator to resolve those um, <laughs> yep. if not video evidence and even then you'll get corner cases where the video evidence is not clear it's yeah. an impossible term card to adjudicate what I'm trying to say is that because of those facts it is fundamentally associated with the old school experience if you're an old school magic player you need a chaos orb it's like part of it's not just like a right of it's not like you know, it's a card that if you really want to fully build out your deck in some sort of even quasi-optimized manner, you probably need a Chaos Orb. And so it's become 
even more, I think, than power, a kind of card that is tangibly associated, or maybe intangibly more literally, associated with the old school magic experience. And specifically, kind of like 94, 90, 93, 94, 95, 96, less so pre-modern or middle school, right. of course. But it's become indelibly associated with that experience in a way that it can't be for vintage, even though it's, it was an iconic Type 1 card. It's actually astonishing to me that it lasted so long without being restricted, given all the problems that it created. It wasn't restricted until more than a year after its its legality, um, and then ultimately banned after that. But the point, Kevin, is that it's it's an old school card in a way that is is mul- that layers meaning of old school. You know that that you can't that's because it's not a vintage card anymore, and yet it's part of that vintage experience it's more of an old school card than i think any other card can be associated with like old school does that make sense what i'm saying yes absolutely i get it the uh it is representative and emblematic of concepts and the environment surrounding old school in in the combination of ways that no other card can match exactly it's singular to to old school in a way that no other card can represent yeah. Because it's only legal and old school, basically. For two yeah. reasons. Because it's banned in sanctioned magic, and because it was only really available in the card pool in the periods that are the old, earliest versions of old school. So yeah. for those dual reasons, it's associated with old school, which has become a frankly massive endeavor. Like old school itself. I, I was looking at the Discord channel, Kevin, I think that it's not even close to a stretch to say that the number of people who play old school dwarfs the number of people who play vintage these days in in a global sense. That there are people, and in fact, I mean, it's like EDH. EDH has become so much bigger than other constructed formats in a way that's kind of mind-boggling. It's not even, you know, it's technically, it's it's technically, you know, has a sanctioned component. But old school communities, I mean, I encounter regularly people who haven't seen a magic card printed in the last 15 years and they can pick up and play old school no problem or people who have never played old school back in the day but love it more than contemporary forms of magic so i think old school is 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 large and growing and it's lar- larger than i ever imagined it would be kevin and there's so yeah. many different versions of old school you know the alpha league to, you know routinely has 60 70 80 players per month which is you know the same size as the alpha league that's the same size as a weekly vintage challenge <laughs> right you know, right you know that's huge for a set that has a, you know a tiny printing um this is i think the most indelible old school card the most emblematic as you put it but probably singular definitional old school card more than any other card it is old school because it's only legal and old school and then when you combine yeah. that fact, I mean, that could have been the case for if Falling Star was in Alpha, just thought experiment. Imagine it was. Imagine that Falling Star was in Alpha, right? It would not have that association because Chaos Orb is its its iconic art, its iconic ability, its power. All of those things are bound up together, right, to make it so iconic. Falling Star doesn't have iconic art, and it's not nearly as powerful. But you put yeah. all those things together, then you get an incredible card. Um, and in fact, just as, to kind of illustrate that, the top prize at Eternal Weekend's old school event, 
<laughs> Eternal Central runs is a Chaos Orb deck case, deck box. Slash trophy. Slash trophy, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my argument for why it's probably, it may be the most iconic card in the set, but I think it's the most iconic old school card, period. Well, won't debate any of that with you. There is at least, there are a couple other metrics by which you can measure in this uh, iconic nature. And that is Chaos Orb is on a short list of cards whose art and function have been uh, mocked, parodied within Magic. <laughs> and I'm referring, of course, to the first silver-bordered set, Unglued, yeah. which featured the card Chaos Confetti. Chaos Confetti, for those who don't know, is a artifact, costs four. It says, four, tap, tear Chaos Confetti into pieces. Throw the pieces onto the battlefield from a distance of at least five feet. <laughs> Destroy <laughs> each permanent that a piece touches. Remove the pieces from the game. Steve, can you tell the audience who might not know why this particular parody of Chaos Confetti exists the way it does mechanically? Yes, it's so clever. It's referring to a little piece of apocrypha that back in the day, players, and there were some specific instances of this, would literally tear up their chaos orbs in order to destroy their opponent's entire board. Mm -hmm. um, and there are all sorts of silly stories around how people would try and play around chaos orb. But the fundamental thing you need to understand to appreciate that story is that chaos orb, as, as Kevin read, destroys all cards it touches. Which means that if you have your cards bunched up, so imagine you have a forest with a wild growth underneath it, and you chaos orb and hit it, you destroy both of those cards, not just because you destroyed the the forest, but you because it touched both of them. So, for example, if you bunch up all of your forests together, and the Chaos Orb lands and hits three or four of them, they're all destroyed. So yeah. back in the day, and so if you ever watch Brian Weissman's board, he <laughs> has unconsciously spread his cards precisely the degree necessary to avoid Chaos Orb from hitting two cards at once. He has kind of unconscious distancing, social distancing or physical distancing <laughs> of his cards to the exact degree needed to maximize space but minimize threat of Chaos Orb hitting two permanents at once. That's not the tendency of how we play with our cards today. People kind of bunch up their land and their threats together yep. into different piles as, as, as Magic Online does for you when you play Magic Online. Now, the good news is to avoid that problem, Old school communities, alpha accepted, have uniformly errated Chaos Orb to hit a target, which I think is quite sensible. Now, I also think it's equally sensible that Alpha League doesn't and Alpha uh, Alpha 40 communities don't because you're playing under the spirit of Alpha. So uh, right. that's one, yep. one risk in playing Alpha and bunching up your cards. But if you watched my finals match against Joel Mick, you'll notice I don't care. I'll bunch them up anyway. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So, well, so that's that's the story behind the, the the confetti is that is that because players would spread their cards that you know l legendarily someone in the you know climax of a final match of a tournament you know as a point of apocrypha would 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 shred their chaos orb to destroy their opponent's boards. Yeah, and that story and ones like it are uh, good examples of true legends in the Magic community, right? Stories that are right. shared in different contexts and they morph over time and have different 
purposes in their telling and different settings, right? I heard that this player did this. I oh, I heard it was this. You know, right? It's a right. famous example of that. And they and all your serve, comments. Sorry, I was going to say they all serve to underscore the allure of this card. Yeah, yeah. You uh, you didn't refer to one of its applications that, and I don't blame you because it's not one that you really participated in and paid much attention to, but it's one that I did. My usages of Chaos Orb are far more... I, I don't play old school, and I wasn't playing Vintage when Chaos Orb was officially part of Vintage. So all of my applications for Chaos Orb are in the context of the five-color format. <laughs> back, awesome. Back around the turn of the century, five-color is only in hindsight truly a, a variant of old school. Yeah. It would be considered an old school format, I think, by today's model. But that's not the point. Five Color was a format that was in, a casual format. It was it was the, the casual format that predated uh, EDH, and one of its tenets was to increase randomness in Magic, similar to the way that a Highlander formats like EDH do. This format did it through, not through <laughs> deck construction limitations on quantities of cards, but uh, uh, individual cards, but deck construction limitations on the size of your deck. Yes. The most, the most notable feature of five color is that your deck had to be 250 cards, and that was intended to increase variance, right? And you also were required to play some number of cards of each color. That number started out at 20 and went up a little bit over the years as the format evolved. And all of that was designed to increase variance. So everyone was playing a humongous five-color deck. And <laughs> part of the tenet of that format is that it allowed for much more cards than Vintage did at the time. And the two best examples of that are Contract from Below and Chaos Orb. Chaos Orb was always restricted. Contract was not, which was by design and, and uh, increased the variance of the format. But anyway, that the cultural element of spreading your your battlefield out the way you described for uh, old school vintage players like Brian Weissman was also a cultural standard in the five color community is that you deployed your cards in a spaced out grid in the game area in front of you. And to bolster that effect, there was a rule in five color in particular that I don't think was really carried on to any subsequent format that whenever the card chaos orb was either announced or even revealed, you were no longer allowed to move your cards around. Yes. So the point was you couldn't you know you couldn't just put chaos orb on the stack and then your opponent just you know tossed their cards all over the bedroom or whatever <laughs> that kind of thing was not allowed the cultural norm was once chaos orb was visible to either player uh you know it was public information basically you you couldn't move your cards around on the battlefield aside from tapping them so that was in addition to the cultural standard of spreading your things out, which uh, was to avoid chaos or because like it or not, the effect is still really powerful, even as a one of in a 250 card format. Yeah, no, I should have said that that's also the rule in old school, at least back in the day, was that once it's announced, you can no longer move your permanents. Uh, oh, same I, thing didn't, in I didn't realize that. So yeah, that, that has, gone, why, that has that, gone by the wayside. Right, but that's why yeah. that's still the rule. I mean, they, it's no longer the rule in old school because you don't need to because it's now targeted. Right. Um, but in alpha, I think that's still the practice. Oh, okay. I got you. That makes sense. Well, obviously, lots of affinity for Chaos Orb. We didn't really directly address the fact that it's Mark Tadine art, and he's just such an iconic stalwart of the game in the early years, even to today. And uh, there's really not much you can say about Tadine that's not plainly obvious by looking at his style and the fact that he continues to make art for the game today. Kevin, I would like to, I propose that we handle all the circles together. And the reason for that is because the next card in limited edition is technically not in alpha. 
(laughs) (laughs) Yeah, very good call. So let's do that. And let's, do you want to talk about the omission first or do you want to talk about the cards first? Yeah, let's talk about the omission. So limited edition alpha was originally advertised on the packaging and advertising as being 300 cards. But in fact, limited edition alpha was not. It was 295 cards. (laughs) Yeah, which is funny. Um, And there were, there basically, basically five cards that were missing. Um, There were, one version of each basic, sorry, seven cards that are missing. There's one version of each basic land, although it's hard to know whether those were technically missing in some sense or they were just added into beta. I'm sure there's an answer to that. Um, but the, the two, there were two cards that definitively were in gamma that didn't make it to alpha. And that, this is the first one. Circle of protection black. So it's a very notable, uh, omission. Because the other four COPs are are there. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, I mean, Magic has had broken cycles on purpose many times since this point, but this was a broken cycle on accident, definitely. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to flag before we get into the the nitty-gritty here is that in Alpha, uh, Anson Maddox is misattributed for COP Red. It's actually Mark Tadine who did the art on that. Ah, yes. Good call. Well, so then circles of protection in general, there's a connection, there's some connective tissue here to the laces, which, so we've already referred to the circles. They all have the same model. And so I'll read the blue one, which is ostensibly number one on the list in alpha. And that is one W for an enchantment, which says one colon prevent all damage against you from one blue source. If a source does damage to you more than once in a turn, you must pay one mana each time to prevent the damage. The, Language here is not as embarrassing as it could be, (laughs) you know, from a historical context. Perfect. There were lots of opportunities to botch this language, I think, and I think they did a decent job. The uh, there's there's still a little bit of uh, you know strategic advice here in the form of (laughs) if you're going to get damaged multiple times, you're going to have to keep more mana open. So that's some strategic advice, which is nice. But the then this is interesting, in my opinion, due to the language that is pretty understandable by today's nomenclature but i don't know how well codified it was in alpha about the notion of a source right yes in in your experience steve how broadly applicable is the word source because we have a modern understanding that might not be justified in the alpha rules it's a very good question it's obviously a very difficult question to answer uh i I would say that a source has two two aspects first it is a, a singular card meaning a or an effect meaning a singular identity and the second is that it's the singular use of that card or identity object. <laughs> so the most obvious case of this is probably Pestilence. Mm, because yeah. Pestilence is one of the few cards in Alpha that just kind of radiates damage outward in different directions, right? It goes and to it's going to be repeatable within the same turn. Within the same step or phase even, right? Yeah. So it's somewhat subject to interpretation but i think the prevailing interpretation is that you can bunch up pestilence activations into a single shot like you might do with a rocket launcher which rocket launcher is in antiquities and then revised not in alpha beta unlimited so you could you know pile up activations right into and then allow them to resolve simultaneously and then i would or you can spread them out one at a time so you could go activate pestilence. It resolves, right? Let it resolve. Activate it again mm-hmm. once you get priority back, and so on. Kind of a rat a tat tat. 
my sense is that bunching them up, so going, I'll activate, respond to myself, activate, respond to myself, activate, respond to myself, activate, holding priority. Obviously, mm-hmm. priority doesn't exist on the alpha rule book, but the, but I think that would be considered a single source. And then all four points of damage would resolve simultaneously to all creatures and all players. Um, whereas, um, if you did it one at a time, they would be individual sources. Now, the problem with that example is that COP Black is not an alpha. So, <laughs> so it's moot. That's a, that's a pretty considerable problem. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a moot in alpha. That would otherwise be, I think, a very powerful combination in Alpha League, much like COP Red and, uh, and Orcish Artillery. It's also notable that you can't COP Red yourself, COP Black yourself from a Lord of the Pit. But there is a workaround in Alpha itself, which is you can slide of mind a different COP to turn it into a COP black. <laughs> or yeah, or you could chaos lace your Lord of the Pit. Yes. To make it red and use your circle red. <laughs> there yeah. you go. That's clever. Yeah, that's some the emergent gameplay there, alluding to our prior conversation about laces. So I love the fact that there are these built-in combos, and it speaks to the fact that we've already articulated, which is that these not all circles of protection are created equal, right? Uh, Ostensibly, it is a symmetric cycle across colors, but in practice, it is dramatically different, right? Those circles of protection, blue and white, get (laughs) a lot less of a workout in the context of limited edition alpha and subsequent old-school formats, right? They get a lot less of a workout than do the reds and blacks of the world. Yeah. Yeah, the red is, gives you... There's a lot of symmetrical damage with Earthquake and Orcish Artillery. So the red yeah. get, gets a lot more utility. There is Hurricane in green. And then later on, if Ififrit. Oh, um, yeah. Green came in second in terms of self-damaging, really, in practice. Not second. Kind of in third, because red and black are sort of tied for first in terms of self-damaging. In the yeah. alpha context, I'm not sure what I'm not, I'm not sure what the breakdown is actually. We haven't gone well, through enough of the set for me to remember. You got pestilence and orcish uh, artillery. What else would you put in that category of good self damaging well, combos? Blue, blue has volcanic eruption and psionic blast. They can both do damage to you. Yeah, red but has earthquake. Earthquake and um, orcish artillery, as we already mentioned. Yeah, which are, are so I guess there's far more prominent. Yeah, I guess it's a little more uniform than I than I thought because blue has all this color pie breaking stuff by today's standards in alpha that it, it would not have in a modern set. So I guess the analogy I was trying to draw there is a little bit diluted, but blue just does more damage to things and people in alpha than it ever will later on, really. <laughs> it's, we haven't really gotten to that theme exactly because we haven't hit one of those blue cards that does that yet, but pretty there- soon we will and we'll point that out in more detail. The one other thing I'd mention in terms of the symmetrical damage is that Alpha and Beta Unlimited do not have circle protection artifact, which is in antiquities, mm-hmm. so it can allow you to deal with things like Copper Tablet or Ankh of Mishra or Dingus Egg or things like that. Yeah. Well, the circles certainly were a very casual staple for my early experience with magic. I'm not saying it was good, but I can tell you that in the early days yeah. when I was learning magic and we were still in that uh, mid-90s time frame, there was still a cultural belief that the circles were sort of a pinnacle of protection <laughs> in a in a lowercase p sense, right? That yes. was a go-to thing. Like, if you can't beat this red deck, well, put some circles red in there, you know? Yeah. And obviously, the red is high on the list for various reasons due to red's weaknesses against it, but... The simple truth is, is that 
I grew up in my early days of just casual appreciation of magic, thinking that the circles were just the pinnacle of sideboard technology, really, of, of you know, right. a, a silver bullet to defeat any given deck. You just put the associated circles in. Well, it's it, laughable by today's standards. I, well, I don't think it's about so much a matter of today versus back in the day. I think it's more a matter of experience with the game. That if you are just encountering yeah. the game kind of freshly, these look immensely powerful. You're telling me there's only five colors in Magic, and I can play this simple spell that stops an entire color in its tracks? I mean, that just appears <laughs> very powerful. And then, you know, good yeah. luck playing a COP white against Monastery Mentor. You know, he'll be, you'll be, <laughs> the mentor will be able to easily overwhelm it. I mean, anyone who has, you know, a little bit of competitive experience quickly will be disabused of their initial presumption. But that's part of magic. Part of magic is learning. Part of magic yeah. is understanding that things that appear are not what they appear, right? That there's a depth to the game. And that's the brilliance of Alpha. That things appear, are not what they appear. They appear simple, but it's their interactions, their inherent emergent, it's their emergent complexity, not their inherent nature that defines them. And I think that the circle of protections are kind of like lesson one on that. You know, if you're going to teach it in an academic setting, I would say I would probably use them as a, as a, as one of my, my classes. I want to point out, since we've done some historical or some uh, kind of ancestry tracing on many cards, that the circles did not create a strong lineage in Magic directly. Obviously, they're closely tied to the concept of protection, and the concept of protection has long history in Magic and continues to be uh, riffed on in design. The circles themselves, though, you mentioned Circle Protection Artifact. That was the next iteration in the cycle but you have to go basically all the way to uh, Saga to get another interpretation of them. They have the Runes of Protection, which is the exact same yes. cycle, including the artifacts. But they added cycling to the cards, and they made the activation all white mana instead of white. instead of generic or colorless. The There have been plenty of other variants, though, that amped up the efficacy in different ways. And the, they stopped printing strong color hosers in these kind of ways many years ago but the the ones that i'm thinking of really kind of hit their stride around uh tempest and mirage block best example i can think of is the card warmth warmth is an enchantment for two mana that says whenever an opponent casts a red spell you gain two life now that is powerful against red in particular and this is not part of a cycle mind you this is just one card that hoses red that is a powerful anti-red effect in an, in a world, oh, yeah. especially in a Tempest kind of era where red was all about small creatures and direct damage. And if you're attacking someone with a jackal pup and they play warmth, it undoes a lot of your advantage. And so warmth was a really powerful hoser that I think is obviously in the same lineage as the circles while being mechanically pretty different. And then we got other hosers yeah. kind of like that, 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 um, Followed more there, in the line in, of the, like death lace and uh, death grip. I mean, you didn't mention it, but wasn't there in Legends a one that's like COP red and black? Oh yeah, Greater Realm of Preservation. You're right. I forgot about that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was, and they amped up the activation on that to be one W, even though it prevents damage from a red yeah. or a black source. They increased the activation as an acknowledgement of the fact that it was probably doubly strong. So that's a that's a good one, and that card I've seen that card in some sideboards in old school contexts. 
it's not standard by anything, but I, I've seen a couple examples. Yeah. It's it really is hard in old school for mono black, which is very powerful, to overcome a COP black. Um, it's just like you know, Juzem, Hippie Black Knight or Pump Knight Bad Moon deck is very inherently powerful. But unlike the Alpha decks, which have you know, Juggernaut and Jade Statue, it doesn't have a lot of colorless sources of damage. So, which by the way is why Dystopia was such a huge printing. Oh yeah, because it finally gave yep. Black a way to destroy COPs and Moat. And there wasn't that. There's Gloom too. Gloom is very good. And it's obviously Gloom is designed to be a counterpoint to the COPs. Um, That's that a good way. call out. And we'll drain that a little bit more when we get to Gloom. But it the Gloom has some strangely specific text on it, which was obviously designed to target the circles in the alpha context and beyond. <laughs> the circles have been pr- reprinted a number of times. And I think there was a, a brief time period in the... In the around the turn of the century, when there was a perception that they were still core to Magic's design conceptually, because they were in Tempest before that, they were in fifth edition, then Tempest, then sixth, seventh, and eighth editions. So <laughs> they were in five straight core sets, five through eight, God. and Tempest, which by today's standards seems like a completely a waste of good design space. space. Yeah, but. It just goes to show you that some of the core lessons from Alpha, it took a long time to unlearn some of the lessons, right? And uh, yeah. and so as recently as 8th edition, we were still getting Circles of Protection in our core sets. Wow, I, I guess I hadn't realized they hadn't been reprinted in so long. Yeah, but they're legal and modern because 8th because edition is the cutoff for modern. So 8th edition. So modern wow. is the oldest. It's not it's well, it says they're in not an eternal. It says wait a second, wait a second, Kevin. Holy heck. What? COP Black is in 9th edition, and COP Red is in 9th edition, but Blue and Green are not. Wait, are you serious? <laughs> I, uh, yeah, according to Gatherer, at least. Oh, that's really interesting. I I was only looking at Circle Blue because yeah. it was the first one on our list here. I had no idea. Yeah. That's fascinating. I did not remember that characteristic. Wow, how interesting. Yeah, if you look at the ninth edition set list, it has circle protection black and red and none others. I did not remember and they're that. They're in Ice Age, of course. Oh yeah. <laughs> I did not remember. They're in that. Ice Age, not Tempest. They're in Tempest. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, sorry, you're right, yeah. they are. Yeah. How interesting. So <laughs> so which circle of protection has been printed more than any other? There's only one. There's actually one answer to the question. Yes, it's, it's red. red. <laughs> And they tried. That's a great trivia. They question. tried to print black yes. also, but because it was behind by one, it only tied the rest of them. Then <laughs> that's great. How funny! Obviously, there's some squirrely natures to that question because of uh, like things like promos and other things. I don't know, but that is some hilarious that, trivia. I love that. That's a big money trivia question someday, Kevin, yeah. on uh, Eternal Weekend. Or yeah, something. put that one in your back pocket, listening audience. All right, let's get past these circles to a personal favorite of mine, Clockwork Beast. So I love this card strongly for its art. I'll tell that story in a minute. But um, six mana, artifact creature, put seven plus one plus zero counters on Beast. After Beast attacks or blocks a creature, discard a counter. During the untap (laughs) phase, comma, Controller may buy back lost counters for one mana per counter instead of untapping beast. 
this taps beast if it wasn't tapped already. <laughs> so poor cool. beast. Beast feels so put upon by this text. <laughs> it's such a tragic it really, story. It really is. It's oppressed. <laughs> Now, I just want to get this out of the way. Drew Tucker is my favorite magic artist of all time, and and so I have an affinity for Clockwork Beast in in addition to most of his early pieces. And when I acquired my first power, I was my freshman year of college. I met another player who had been playing longer than me, He and he was trying to get out of the game, basically. And he had beta power. And so, but he didn't have a, a mox jet. He had the rest of the power, Sans Mox Jet. Oh, and he didn't have a Time Twister either. He was missing Twister and Jet. I purchased his power plus a Beta Plateau and a Beta Clockwork Beast. (laughs) That was a great deal. (laughs) I purchased that set of cards from him, which is hilarious. So so seven-ninths of the power, including my Lotus, a Plateau and a Clockwork Beast. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so that was the that you know to date that was the most expensive purchase for me in magic by by a long shot wow and and so clockwork on a beast, relative basis or an a, an absolute terms? Uh, i mean up to that point in my career at an absolute okay. point yeah that was the most i had spent in any one purchase on magic i hadn't bought anything expensive before then all my cards were acquired through boosters right because i was opening so my collection was almost entirely revised at that point because i wasn't going to overpay for those 15 dollar legends boosters i mean come on and so, anyway, that was the most expensive thing I'd bought to that point. Obviously, now that, that scale has become out of whack. But uh, So I have a strong affinity for Clockwork Beast because of its art and because of its hilarious alpha wording and because of the time and, way, and context in which I acquired it. It's worth noting that aside from my power, I acquired two Drew Tucker cards in that deal, the Clockwork Beast and the Plateau. Wow, yeah. that's so... So how... How many Drew Tucker? This is the first Drew Tucker piece we've encountered in our review so far. Yes. How many Drew Tucker pieces are in Alpha? Okay, so the answer to that question is is a noteworthy one for for a couple of reasons. So in Alpha, Drew Tucker really only has three cards. I just listed two of them: Clockwork Beast and Plateau. The third one is Power Leak, which we'll get to later on. Mm. And then he he has a similar amount of cards in Arabian Nights. He's got five. That's a tragically low number yeah, I for know. Drew Tucker, I have to and say. A true sadness is that he has none in Legends. He didn't do any cards in Legends uh, or Antiquities. And then he kicks it into high gear with a bunch of cards in the dark. In the, in the and dark. then Fallen Empires. Yeah. Um, and they even took out his plateau. Uh, yeah, what that's, an insult. That's the other thing I wanted to note was that Drew Tucker is on the short list of people who had art changed from Alpha to Beta to Unlimited. The uh, I'm sorry to, to Alphabet Unlimited to revised. revised. They lost the master artwork for Plateau and didn't have a, a sufficient digital copy at the time either, and so they simply had to commission a new art for Plateau. And they didn't commission Drew Tucker; they commissioned Cornelius Broody. But like so many things that happen along the way, they forgot to update the artist credit in Revised. So all those those of you who have revised uh, plateaus, they say Drew Tucker at the bottom, but that's not his art. That's Cornelius Broody's art. And subsequent printings of plateau have Cornelius Broody credited. And I know you might be saying, wait a second, Kevin, what do you mean subsequent printings of plateau? Well, what I really mean is uh, digital ones. The online printings of plateau that use that revised art are credited to Cornelius Broody. Well, Kevin, you you teased me. You said that the Drew Tucker only did three pieces in Arabian Nights, 
I was flipping through my set of Arabian Nights and I already figured out what they were. Uh, no, he did five. Uh, five in Arabian Nights. It was, th- oh, it was three in Alpha. Yeah. So, so I figured out the three three of them. They're sitting in a bottle, Dan Dan, and God, Repentant Blacksmith yeah. has such amazing art. <laughs> it's so cool. What I love about the, the watercolor and Repentant Blacksmith, and this is really an aside, is the way in which the, the kiln is radiating heat. Yes. And he represents that smoke and, and steam and that heat with kind of a blur of watercolor. Oh, I know. But I'm right there with are, you. What are the what are the other two he did? I'm looking through two, it. it doesn't, they don't stand out. Two red creatures. Ah, Yidwin of Freet, definitely is Drew Tucker. <laughs> Hard, yeah. Not Majay Jin. Hold on. Oh, and then Her Jackal. Yep. Yep. And interestingly, Her Jackal's a note. We're not, we're, not, we're not doing our Arabian Nights set review again, but Her Jackal's noteworthy in the Drew Tucker context because he has a geog- geometric pattern in the background, which is very unusual for him. It's much more of a Margaret Organ Keen thing, and mm-hmm. he simply just does not do that in any of his other magic arts in that same way. It's really interesting. I wonder if he was partnering or or trying to branch out in a certain way for that particular Her Jackal art. So anyway, back to Clockwork Beast. Enough on Drew Tucker, although it's a favorite <laughs> subject of mine. So this well, this here, alpha text here, is obviously comical in a number of ways, Steve. What's your first thought? Well, the the text is interesting in a number of ways, as you say, but one of the, the things that stands out to me is the is the broad way in which the word discard is mm, used. Yep. So discard a counter. Um obviously we've seen discard in a lot of different contexts, but uh, and then, of course, the way it says, like, buy back is kind of co- colloquialism <laughs> yeah. as opposed to just, I mean, implying exactly what does that mean? Does it mean that it can only get a loss counter so it can't become larger than seven? It's it's not clear on that point, right? <laughs> um, you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. The implication is exactly that. And the current Oracle wording has, among much text, it says, um, this ability can't cause the total number of plus zero plus one counters on Clockwork Beast to be greater than seven. Plus one, plus zero. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Which is hilarious because, well, two things. It's obviously tied to the buyback concept that you've referred to specifically, meaning the the implication is you start at seven, you go down by some amount, you can go back up, but you can't get bigger than seven. The other thing that's funny is that if you had another effect that plus put plus one, plus zero counters on Clockwork Beast, they would all contribute to this limitation, right? <laughs> it, yeah, but that, yeah, but that limitation is only on its own activated ability, right? Which is has been has been retemplated well, by today's standard as an activated ability, but it's not entirely clear based on the alpha wording that that is an activated ability and not a triggered one. I think that for alpha rules, you have to make a decision about what is meant by buyback lost. So it says during the untapped phase. Comma controller may buy back loss counters for one mana per counter instead of untapping. Uh-huh. So, is there any other way it can get counters and then lose them to get above seven in alpha? In alpha, if so, then I would. <laughs> okay, just wondering. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, now, when you layer in other sets in the future, there's there's almost certainly ways, but within the context of alpha, the only effects that even reference the the variables plus one plus two is clockwork or plus one plus zero is clockwork beast uh in terms of counters yeah i mean the the card the all the fire breathing variants obviously do that but they're not counters and wall of water as well so clockwork beast is unique in generating plus one plus zero counters within the context of alpha 
So, Kevin, it's interesting. Clockwork Avian in Antiquities has essentially the same phrasing. It says, controller may buy back lost counters for one mana per counter. <laughs> yep. Semicolon, except it says, this taps Avian instead of instead of untapping it. So it is a more sim- more efficient version of that final clause. And it's um, um, it's obviously more clearly cl- akin to an activated ability. Uh, this because the the alpha text it it oh, starts yeah, with right. during the untap phase right and yeah. as such that is strongly Im- implies uh either a triggered ability or well by today's standards it have to be a triggered ability where you can buy back counters but there are so many other cards like mana vault for example that requires mana to untap them it's yes. there's like some, some close connectivity mechanically here between untapping and buying back counters as opposed to paying mana to untap it. This obviously shares a lot of the syntactic problems with Time Vault and Mana Vault that we've already discussed. Yeah. So, so Kevin, I want to. Is there anything else you want to say about the phrasing or text? I want to talk about it in the larger context of. of I just want to point out how comical it is that it refers to itself in the third person as beast. As beast. <laughs> yeah. So, Avian Clockwork Avian does the exact same thing. By what does the it way. refer to itself as? <laughs> Avian. Avian, yeah, <laughs> that's that's awesome. So it seems pretty clear that they just replicated this this text and didn't update it very much when they made the Clockwork Avian. That's awesome. No, yeah. that's it for me. So what I want to point out is that that there are four cre- uh, artifact types in Alpha, and this is the first artifact creature we've encountered. Oh yeah. Um, technically speaking, though, there are basically only two artifact creatures in the entire set, <laughs> uh, which is pretty remarkable for creating its own card subtype right we're going to create its own subtype for exactly two cards uh, aren't, which aren't there is, three? Oh, sorry, there's, I'm sorry there's three yeah, there's three there's three yeah um three so they create their own subtype for three cards which is obsidianus golem uh golem uh, uh juggernaut and and this card and i wanted to just compare them for a moment i think this is a thematically cool card because you really get the sense of you know it being a mechanical construction mm-hmm. clockwork beast um, but there are basically two other artifact cards that j- either are, become creatures or generate creatures, and that's the Hive and Jade Statue. Mm-hmm. Um, Jade Stat, uh, the Hive, I think, being the only card, if I'm not mistaken, from Alpha that generates tokens. Uh, yes, it is. Missing anything? No, you're, I think you're right. Yeah. Um, the progenitor for all future token making cards. All tokens, which we'll <laughs> we'll mention again. When we get to it. Um, but the point I wanted to make is that. There's a small number of these artifact creatures, only three, and I think I think it's fair to say this is the worst one. It's even worse than the hive, and art, artwork notwithstanding, Kevin, it's also worse than, clearly worse than Jade Statue. I, I think uh, J- Juggernaut and Jade Statue are the two best. Obsidian's Gollum is very difficult to deal with <laughs> because it's four six. I mean, you know, the toughness makes it just basically invulnerable to everything. It's a little pricey, six mana, but it's not outside the realm of, of playability. Yeah. You know, it's just very good on defense and, and a decent clock on offense. Whereas, by a, as a point of comparison, Clockwork Beast costs the same as Obsidian's Gollum, but is far harder to use. It's not as effective on defense because, first of all, it's only got four toughness. Mm-hmm. Every time you defend with it, it loses a point of power. Yep. And so if you block immediately... The turn you play it, it's already down to six four, and then you attack, and then it's down to five four after that. 
At which and then point, it just gets smaller at which and point, smaller. Why did you just not play a juggernaut? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It, 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 you know, a third less cost. So, um, I, I think it's notable that it's kind of objectively worse than all the other artifact creatures in, in Alpha. The worst, but it might have the best art. <laughs> it's a good top down design, right? It's evocative of a machine losing steam, right? You've wound it up. And every time you use it, it loses a little bit, and you've got to wind it up again. That kind of imagery exactly. is is evoked many in many more times across cards throughout Magic in different ways mechanically. I do think from a design standpoint, you're absolutely right. I genuinely don't understand why this costs as much as it does, why it costs six mana. Especially when the avian costs five. Yeah. And you would assume that flying, even though it has less power, you would assume flying is a greater cost. Yeah. And... I also think that four four. I, I don't know how early magic was tested literally. I don't know if Richard Garfield and friends had much mechanical rigor to their testing, right? But yeah, my modern interpretation of this card is it it pre- presents the same clock, no pun intended, as Juggernaut does, because seven, six, five, and four kills in four turns, just the same way that five, yeah. five, five, and five does, right? Right, so, but a two additional, two additional mana. mana. Yeah, so why were they so afraid of this costing... This could even have cost four. And Yeah, theoretically, it really and, could have. And if, if this cost four, it would still card. be played less than Juggernaut in my, expe- in my expectation. Like, there's... You could make a case. It might... It would be I, better in some cases than Juggernaut, but it would have to cost four in order to even approach that conversation, in my opinion. So, so here, here's the only way I can even begin... This is pure speculation. Mm-hmm but begin to answer that question. My guess is that they probably thought that seven power for a four-mana card was too great. You know, it's certainly uh, beyond the Illusionary pale. Wall had, yeah, it's certainly beyond the pale within this yeah, set. Right. Illusionary Wall hadn't been printed yet. But here's the thing. If you, if you design a card like this, where the underlying concept is that every time it engages in combat, it loses a, a point of power, you, you have to begin with the fairly high power. Yeah. Or else it's just not, it's a non-starter. It's a not a viable concept. Yeah. So I could see how they, they decided, okay, we've got an underlying concept where this, this mechanical thing is going to lose power every time it attacks or blocks. How do we, where do we peg the starting power? And I think seven is probably six or seven is probably where you have to start, Kevin, unless you want it to be some sort of super efficient thing that costs like two or three. Yeah. Then you could probably have it starting power four or five. Yeah, I see your point. Don't you think that's probably how that started? I see your point, and part of the reason, too, is that Juggernaut is simply undercosted. So the comparison <laughs> yeah. I'm drawing is fundamentally flawed. It's probably better to compare this to cards like Crawworm, right? Yes. For 4GG, which is a 6-4. Six, six, four. Four. And so this thing starting out as a 7-4 favors, uh, ostensibly, it, it, it compares favorably with Crawworm. And you also have to account for the benefit of this being colorless, right? It gives any deck... Access yes. to a card similar to Crawworm, at least exactly. It's similar it gives you an to Crawworm. Offensive threat yeah. that can't be cop. Right, and yeah. so there's something to that. And then this, uh, you know, stat wise, this compares favorably to Shivan Dragon, also, in th- in that sense. <laughs> wow. I mean, and not in practice. And I'm not trying to make that case, of course, but just on paper, six mana seven five is compares favorably to a six mana five five Fire Breather. Obviously, in practice, the answer is a lot different, but. The so I can see in the context of development how 
it might have felt that way. My modern sensibilities tells me that this that this design's not pushed enough, but that goes for a lot of cards in Alpha, I guess. Is this card a rare? Oh yeah, big time. Jeez, <laughs> yeah. I was like, I was looking at the price of this. I was like, oh my god, this card is expensive. <laughs> yeah, it has got to be a rare. It has been reprinted a few times, and it's ironically it has been reprinted every time but one with this same Drew Tucker art because it was in all the sets up to because it, it was in fourth edition and then it was in what's after that some international sets then it was in fifth why edition. why would you ever reprint it without the drew tucker art it wouldn't even be worthwhile well it, so up till fifth I, edition I was the last core set kind of booster product printing then after that it was just in a, the beatdown box set and that beatdown box set was in several years oh, I later love that set i i I I bought that. It was great. That was in t- the year two thousand, I think, which suggests to me that they may have no a couple years after that. Okay. I think it came maybe two thousand, but I, I think it was like two thousand. Maybe yeah. God was it that long. Well, my ago? guess is Jeez. that they probably had lost the rights to the art at that point. Is probably the reason why, and it hasn't been reprinted in paper since then. So it's had one printing with revised art, Carl, not not oh, lowercase R, revised art by Carl Krichkow. All the preceding ones are with the same art. And they also punched um, up the color balance, uh, the, the saturation, I mean, a lot in subsequent printings, too. The uh, If you look at the unlimited Clockwork Beast, the card looks incredibly faded in comparison to all other ones. The combination geez. of white borders with the slightly blurrier unlimited frame, it gives a really washed out view of the card as compared to the more poppy, you know, fifth edition copy. So I, I want to go back to sorry this is jumping back to the point I was making yep. most recently about artifact creatures. I think designing a set like this that's called Five Magics and then becomes Magic the Gathering mm-hmm. is really tricky and I think the with respect to artifact creatures because you're really trying to balance a couple of things, right? First of all, it's notable that there are no common artifact creatures. Yes. But I believe Obsidian so this is the rare Jade Statue, Juggernaut and Obsidian Golem I believe are all uncommon. So you don't want them to be too common, right, to be able to access them. But you also need to be able to give, as you said, colors across the color pie access to a threat that they can use regardless of the colors that the that the owner or controller has access to that can slot in yeah. more widely. And I think that's really important in balance, right? And, and part of it, and so there's a trade-off. The trade-off is that they're more vulnerable to artifact removal, disenchant, shatter, things like that. But they can also get through and around these COPs. Now, they also can be played off-channel. That's an incredibly small corner case. (laughs) But I think that that trade-off of not being vulnerable to color hosers and being able to get around like COPs or blasts or whatever, wards, and being more broadly usable, I think think basically what, what this set is telling me is that if you get two starter decks and a couple of packs, Richard Garfield and his team is saying, we're going to give you one, probably one artifact creature to put in your deck. <laughs> uh, that's yeah. about roughly what it's saying to me. Yeah, I think that's I think that's accurate. When you've got yeah, two uncommons and a rare. Um, I, I want to reinforce... So whether you, whether, you go in, whether you go into you know red-black or white-blue, whatever your color combination is, you're going to have a little bit of flexibility. And I think that's important. I honestly think that's important. Another thing that is noteworthy from a set design standpoint, and Steve, I'm pretty sure that you're well aware of this, but for the benefit of our audience, how many cards in Alpha will destroy an artifact 
that don't also destroy like a creature. How many cards in, art, in Alpha destroy an artifact that don't destroy a creature? Yeah. <laughs> there's a category of cards. That's a tough question. Yeah, there's a category of cards yeah. that we refer to by the two examples in Alpha historically because of Shatter and Yeah, because they're the progenitors. They're the only two. There's one other yeah. n- there's one other near case and that's Nev's disc. That blows up everything, right? But it, it's worth noting that we encode artifact creatures as having an additional weakness, right? You alluded right. to That's it. That's not true in Alpha. It's, it's only yeah. barely true, right? There's only Disenchant and Shatter yeah. that that generate that well, weakness, and they have an inherent advantage over Terror. So, yes. so the weakness is even mitigated. <laughs> and the COPs. And the COPs, yeah, yeah. So the weakness is really diluted. So I think I'm I'm probably a little guilty of thinking of artifact creatures in the modern context a little too strongly in this example of Clockwork Beast. And I think your points are pretty strong that... In the in the alpha context specifically, it's a pretty strong advantage, both from a color and yes. a durability and a sidestepping yes. hate context. And they give you enough, just enough variety among the limited ones they have yeah. around offense, defense, resilience, reliability. Yeah. You know that that you can you know decide which one, which you know, based upon your strategy, which of these artifact creatures is the best fit for you. Yeah, and it's it's worth noting that. Despite the fact that Juggernaut is undercosted, as a whole, these artifact creatures are safely costed, right? Jade statue at yeah. four mana, but you've got to put more into it to get it to into combat. Juggernaut, I think, is miscosted by a little bit in context with the others, but the the golem and the beast are really safely costed. Yeah, it's going to take a lot for them to take over a game, right? You're going to get a lot of fair warning. <laughs> yeah, in practice, I, I sometimes wish. Oh, there is one other artifact creature i should have mentioned it's 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 living wall oh is right i forgot about technically that. an artifact creature so but it's different context that's, altogether uh, yeah that's living wall it's interesting living wall has some of the advantages of jade statue a little bit just because kind of of, of its size right and its durability but not nearly as much, not nearly to the extent of Jade Statue because most of the creature removal still applies to it. Yeah. It does regenerate, yeah. which is nice, yeah. but it has zero offense. It's just a wall. <laughs> yeah. All right. Love me some Clockwork Beast. Let's move on to, gosh, just another example of things that are established in Alpha that permeate the rest of Magic, and that is Clone. Clone costs 3W, Summon Clone, which is no longer a creature type. Upon summoning, clone acquires all normal characteristics, including color, of any one creature in play on either side. Any enchantments on original creature are not copied. Clone retains those characteristics even after original creature is destroyed. Clone cannot be played if there are no creatures in play. That last bit's kind of funny. The um, There's some strategic advice in there, right? <laughs> that clone retains the characteristics even after original is destroyed. That's some strategic advice, which is nice. The notion that clone cannot be played if there are no creatures in play is, it, to my <laughs> eyes, that's power level errata. There's just no two ways about it, right? That statement is, in my opinion, unambiguous. Uh, <laughs> but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Say more about that. I'm not sure I track. Well, the thing that the thing that they're trying to ma- uh, ape here is that you can't cast a clone and have it be in play copying nothing. Yeah. In practice, the card has been made much more forgiving 
Because the current Oracle text is, you may have clone enter the battlefield as a copy of any creature on the battlefield. The word may is doing a lot of heavy lifting there, right? You could cast a clone yeah. in the year of 2020 and have it come into play as a 0-0 creature if you wanted to. And then what, just immediately die. Uh, yeah. You know, castle notwithstanding. Even in Alpha, yeah. you could have cast a clone and not copy something. If if the modern whirling were available, you could have cast a clone, not copy something, and have a 0-2 abilityless creature sitting in play. However, the yeah. Alpha wording says... When when you summon it, it, it acquires all that. normal characteristics of any one creature in play, and it specifically says you can't play it if there are no creatures in play. Like, got it. I I didn't know what you meant by power level errata, but I understand now. I, I to me that's just more along the lines of what you called advice. <laughs> right? Well, it is framed as a rule that you can't do it, but it's it's really about yeah, you know. I, I'm it's, with it's you. Made a, I, made a rule. There, yeah. there are many other things I think in Alpha that were intended as advice that were kept as rules. I think like you could make a case that the castle text about attacking creatures was similar to this, right? Yeah. Like attacking creatures lose this bonus. That's that only matters in the case of creatures with vigilance, right? Right. If you remove vi- vigilance from the equation, that's just redundant reminder text. Wow. Yeah. So Great like point. you you got to look in in the the whole set of alpha and we haven't gotten to her yet but Sarah Angel, right? Yes. Is she the only one with vigilance? I believe so. Yeah. So there's one creature in yeah, alpha. It shouldn't say attacking, it should say tapped creatures lose this Precisely. bonus if that was the intent. Yeah, the, yeah, so it's pretty clear to me that that was that this last line on clone shares a lot of DNA with that last line on castle. Well, strongly point. different examples Great in point. practice, of course. Um, but you know, it's it's not worth getting all up in arms about it. But I do consider the fact that there was a lot of interpretation that went on when this card was updated across its early printings. Like the beta version still says it can't be played. The unlimited version says clone cannot be played if there's no creatures in play. The revised version says clone cannot be summoned if there are no creatures in play. The summer magic version says it. The next <laughs> the next printing of clone was years later in Onslaught. So there's a huge gap between Summer Magic slash, you know, pre-revised and then Onslaught where this this wording was changed. And it seems to me that if you get all the way to Summer Magic, it was probably about to be reprinted and revised at one point. <laughs> Maybe. With this... Uh, I mean, sorry, in, in like 4th edition or something. Yeah, With the same yeah. text, but I, I can't, that's speculation on my part. But if you get all the way to Revised with a phrase like clone cannot be summoned if there are no creatures in play, that's pretty strong evidence that that's a function of that card. Yeah. No, it's an interesting point. Yeah. I want to I want to shift away from the the text yeah. here, which is odd, and to the strategic use slash value. So cl- I've experienced cl- I mean, so it's been a long time since anyone's played clone against me in in type 1 or <laughs> or vintage, although Oh yeah. I I wouldn't say it never has happened. Um I, I I remember clone being more like a Vesuvian doppelganger multiplayer type card. Yeah. You know, in 1995, people sitting around a big table, like eight people sitting around a table, probably with a with that card. But the thing that's interesting to me about clone, within the context of alpha or or limited edition, a little bit more broadly, is that it has both offensive and defensive capabilities. Right? You can copy your best offensive threat oh, yeah. to speed your clock, or you can play it essentially. As a overcosted removal spell in blue, right? That, that that can either subtly dissuade your opponent from attacking you, 
because you don't want to trade. Or in the case of a certain type, kind of card, they'll kick back off each other, like Obsidious Golem attacking each other, right? They just they bounce off. Yeah. Um, or you can you can bl- play it to dissuade your opponent from attacking, but then you know your primary function of your your short term goal is to is to dissuade them from attacking, but your long term goal is to remove their threat and then turn the clone back on offense. So I, I think it clone is a, is a very good card because of its inherent contextual flexibility. The both the time horizon and the potential on both offense and defensive. Whereas it's kind of the opposite in some sense of the card like Camouflage, which is just has almost no tactical, very limited tactical utility and is unpredictable and uncontrollable in terms of it's in planning. You know, it's like you can't really plan in the way that I think we imagine for Camouflage, where this is very much a planning card. What are your thoughts? I think it's just a, a, another great example of emergent gameplay through design, right? The um, Everything you observed is... It's intended to leave it in the hands of the players how they apply this effect, right? And so even two people playing clone in the same deck even can approach its implication, its its applications and its tactical and strategic implications uh, completely differently if they want to, right? Two, two players playing the same match of magic, even a mirror match. Yes. <laughs> no pun intended. Could yes. reach That's different conclusions about it's very how this clone should be implied, right? So it's it, it yeah in a in a very real sense it's kind of an apex of emergent gameplay. I won't say or claim or pretend that the text box is simple. But the concept is simple, right? It's just got a lot of caveats. It's not like <laughs> like Gaia's Liege oh, yeah. is complicated. It's not a simple concept. Oh yeah. Because there's but this is a simple concept with a lot of caveats, <laughs> right? So I think it's a great. I think it. I think it is a good, great example of a card that's yeah, simple in concept, but incredibly deep in strategic application and deployment. And that's what I was trying to get at. Is that you know you can you can use it on different time horizons for different purposes and for different on offense or defense. It's also notably efficient. I mean, four mana is a good. You know, if you're say copy, uh, well, copy artifact is two mana at a rare, but four mana. I mean, obviously, there are a lot less like <laughs> threatening artifacts in terms yeah. of like accelerating towards the end of the game um, than creatures. But if you just say four mana to copy any creature in play, that's that's usually a good deal, which is pretty interesting. You know, it's not especially in the in the alpha context. Like, there's a big gulf between the three, four, and five mana creatures in alpha. Yes, and there's there's not too many creatures in alpha at three mana that are any good. Yeah, it's like Goblin right. King, and that's about it. You know, <laughs> there's Sedge Troll and Royal, Royal, Royal Assassin. Assassin. Okay, yeah, uh, Hippie obviously, but Hippie yeah. functions as a one mana creature a lot yes. of the time. So it's, the simple truth is, there's kind of a gulf between quality creatures <laughs> at two mana, of which there are several, yes, and then the, the good creatures that show up at, f- at five yes. and six mana. Yeah, the three mana creatures and, are mostly utility creatures, and Goblin yeah. Goblin King is is both a threat and a utility creature in a sense. Yeah, but once you get, yeah, you're exactly right. It's like Two, you get a little bit of offense and efficiency. Three is the is utility creature, and then four is when you start getting on real offense. In five, yeah. five, I mean, sorry, four, a little bit of offense. It's five when you start getting to real offense. Five. Yeah, and that's because of the structural 
uh, underpinnings that five mana include all the elementals and Sarah and Sanger. Exactly. There's just so much of an emphasis on five. Yes. And what that means is, to your point, in practice, clone is almost always trading up. Yes, that's my point. Yes, thank you. Yes. (laughs) And even if you are trading down, it's a very small trade down. And it's usually worth it because you're going to be getting a hippie. Yeah. Tra- or, trade down for a hippie is definitely worth yes. it because hippies way undercosted. Yeah. And trade and trade even for a juggernaut is is still, still worth, worth it, it because juggernauts undercosted. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. That's, what I was That's trying a to really get. good observation. Yeah. I, I like that observation. And clone, if you do it right in many matchups, uh, will trade up. Yeah. That's and great. if you're playing like, so let me ask you something. I mean, so two two thoughts. One is, you know, if you're playing mono blue, a lot of times you're going to be copying like an air elemental, air elemental, which is a good deal. You're you're getting another. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You know, another big flyer, up. yeah. Um, would you play this in a mono blue deck or in any deck that doesn't have any non-Jade statue creatures? So you'd be entirely <laughs> relying on your opponent's creatures to copy. Would you play this, Kevin? So ha- did I, if I n- didn't know you and your recent experience with Alpha League, I think I would have said yes. I think I would have <laughs> said you have to expect an Alpha deck to be winning with creatures and this is a quasi-removal spell, trading kind of one-for-one one with one of those creatures. That would have been my baseline assumption. However, given what you've taught me about this format, and for example, how good Jade Statue is, combined with a couple of other factors, like the prevalence of how good Llanowar Elves is, yeah. right? Um, I don't know. I don't think it's correct. <laughs> I don't think it's correct to just play this in the blind and expect it to be a reasonable removal spell against the average deck because of the idiosyncrasies of the format and where the power spikes are from what cards are played. Would you play Control Magic? <laughs> uh, it's basically the same answer, only I'm a little bit more likely to play Control Magic yeah. because Control Magic on a Juggernaut is yes. is a is big game. Yeah. And it's also one of Blue's best answers to a hippie. Yeah, you can take something and turn it against them as opposed to just... Yeah, yeah. It, it's a two-for-one rather than a one-for-one, one, so I'm much more likely to play Control Magic. Yeah. What about Vesuvian... In a pinch, I, I mean, I would Control Magic a Llanowar Elf if yeah. I had to. What about right? Vesuvian Doppelganger? <laughs> uh, I don't see much reason to play Doppelganger over Clone Interesting. in practice. Yeah. Um, I could be wrong about that. There might be some, some decent corner cases. It has a lot to do with whether or not you're mono blue or if you're two colors. Yeah. And I know it's hard to be two colors in alpha. Don't get me wrong. But if your deck has any kind of removal, then Vesuvian goes way up in value, right? Yeah. Cause you it's can... Because you can copy one thing and then upgrade to a better thing <laughs> later on and, and still remove or it. Or you have to copy yeah. something terrible and then it, it right. you know it's vulnerable to removal. Anyway, it, yeah, with clone, I'm expecting to use it as a one for one trade with a terrible thing. But yeah. if my deck has other removal, I'm expecting to remove a thing and then upgrade my doppelganger later. If your blue deck has things like, I don't know, uh, Mahamodi Jin, Air Elemental, Wall of Air, Wall of mm-hmm. Water, then the then the Vesuvian I think gets a lot better because you can, yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah. There's a there's a couple there's a couple things I want to follow up on. One is I'm I'm sorry to to drain this more than I than you probably want to. This line of text that says that you can't play clone if there's no creatures in play, that line doesn't exist on copy artifact or Vesuvian doppelganger. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Interesting. Wow. Yeah. And so that's more ammunition, in my opinion, to the fact that it's actually functional on clone. Now, I don't strongly believe that in the sense that I'm sure that's what Richard Garfield intended. Yeah. I strongly believe that they ran out of t- space on Doppelganger <laughs> because that text is tiny. And they probably didn't think about it at all with copy yeah, artifact. It's so funny. Because they could have so fit funny. it on copy artifact. Yeah. 
So I think it's probably meant to be reminder text in a sense. And that was probably the conclusion that R&D reached when they were going through and cleaning up this language in the late 90s. They probably looked at that and said, that's vestigial. We don't actually need that. But I think they were doing a lot of authorial intent in that action. And it's not entirely consistent or justified or consistently applied to alpha, as you well know. The other thing I want to point out is that this clone is on the list of cards that provide the model for cloning throughout history that we still follow today. Yes. Unlike some things like Channel or whatever, this is much more in line with Bograith, right? Yes. Like four mana for a blue creature that comes in as a copy of something, that is still the standard. I remember playing the- a card in Limited uh, maybe a couple of years ago. I think it was in paper where I there was like a clone that had flashback. It was exactly this. It was like pay four mana, yeah. create a copy, a token copy of a card in play, and then you could flash it oh. back. Oh, the token copy with flashback. I thought you. I think that what you're talking about is um, <sighs> rats. It costs one UU, and I can't remember the title. It was of very it. fun that limited match I played. I don't remember the specifics about it, but it was fun. Are you talking about cackling counterpart? I don't think that was it. I think it actually that makes had, a copy of a creature you control, th- and then it has flashback. I think it actually had the casting cost of clone, but I don't remember. And then it had uh, flashback, or could it be embalm that you're thinking of? In Amonkhet, there was a clone um, that has embalm. That's uh, Vizier of Many Faces, maybe. Which is which is a clone that has embalm for three UU. Maybe that's what it was. Yeah, yeah that that was probably it. Anyway, the, the the fact remains is that even as recently as War of the Spark, we have a four-mana clone. In this case, it's Spark Double, and it has lots more uh, applications because it can copy a uh, Planeswalker. And if you copy a creature, it comes in with a counter. So, like, this is an example just like Bograith, where the model is still there. They've just been amping up what you get for the cost. Yeah. And But the simple truth is there's still a bunch of clones for four-mana throughout Magic's history, all the way back to Sakashima in, in the... Kamigawa block. And there's one, Steve, that we play in vintage all the time. Well, maybe not you and I lately, but there's a vintage staple clone, which is in this same model, and that's Phyrexian Metamorph. Interesting. That's true. And it's in this model because it's ostensibly four mana, although there's a Phyrexian tax on there, so it gets comes down for three mana a lot. And it's much more generous because it's an artifact, and because of the Phyrexian mana, you can play it off of Workshop, and that's the reason why it's played in vintage. But the simple truth is, this vintage staple traces its lineage directly back to clone. Great point. Great point. I, I'm glad yeah. you brought that up. Well, let's move on so, to the to the Cockatrice. Oh, yeah. Cockatrice is awesome. Obviously makes a, a paired a dyad with a Thicket Basilisk, which we can talk about. Cockatrice is 3GG. Summon Cockatrice, which is still correct, actually. It is a Cockatrice, which is wild. It's not a bird. It's a Cockatrice. It has flying. Any non-wall creature blocking Cockatrice is destroyed, as is any creature blocked by Cockatrice. Creatures destroyed in this way deal their damage before dying. <laughs> Which is hilarious, because if, if you didn't say that, that you know, according to modern reading, it wouldn't work that way. It would, it's kind of worded like a trigger as soon as you block, <laughs> yeah. which is not the case. Um, it's interesting to me that it says non-wall, and that has been carried through to the modern oracle wording. There's so in alpha, <laughs> sorry, I can't help but laugh. In alpha, there's not many ways for a cockatrice to become involved with a wall because <laughs> there's only a few that fly. 
in alpha the you know the walls are limited to the ground for the most part except for the wall of air and the wall of swords so there's two exactly two walls in alpha uh jump notwithstanding right you, if Flight, a jump was involved yeah. then uh yeah and also if an animate wall was involved then you could have a cockatrice blocking a wall of stone if you wanted or whatever it's just comical that that yeah. exception's written in when the structure to support that exception is very thin it's true but hey that's not much different than you know island sanctuary referencing island walk uh so, Steve, this card, I love the fact that this card is so symmetrical with Thicket Basilisk, which has all the same text, less flying, right? Yes. But the tactical and strategic implications of flying <laughs> are hilarious and, and make these cards dramatically, dramatically different. Oh, yeah. No, it's so true. I just love it. It's true. It's it's great, great observations. Um, the, obviously, the combo with these cards is lure, which, again, goes to mm-hmm. the point of, like, building in nice combos. Um, or you could also just sirens call your opponent to get them to force them to attack you into your cockatrice, or um, and then you could potentially blaze of glo- blaze of glory it so it could block everything that attacks, wipe your opponent's board <laughs> or entirely. You could camouflage oh, God. <laughs> so that they don't know which of your creatures is your cockatrice. Oh my god, what a nightmare! What a nightmare! <laughs> the, can you the, imagine? The message we're getting here is that if someone just that I, alpha has, I just want to say if someone goes to all the trouble, Kevin. To play a, yeah. a, a lure on a cockatrice or a siren's call <laughs> on you, and and then you camouflage your attackers I, and, and Blaze of Glory, I would be so mad. <laughs> camouflage. <laughs> so part of what we're what are, uh, referring to here is that something we haven't really talked about much, even when we covered camouflage, but it's that Alpha has far more than its share of ways to mess with attacking and blocking than any set after it, I think. <laughs> um, it's just there are so many cards that, that manipulate a player's ability to or control over their attacking and blocking. It's It's comical. It's awesome. Yeah, so the lure example is obviously far more potent when it comes to Thicket Basilisk, right? Because luring a cockatrice right. only kills their flyers. Right. Um, it's also worth noting that this is a progenitor to Death Touch, which doesn't oh, yes. literally exist in Alpha. Great point. But the ability it is, is not touch. contingent. Well, it's no, not it's not. Because of the, it's not right. contingent upon damage. Right, right. And it also has yeah. a wall exception, which Death Touch most that too, <laughs> definitely yeah. does not. <laughs> This is a cool card. 2-4 is interesting, though, because, again, if if the damage thing, if it was contingent on damage, then the you'd have to figure out which two cards, if you could block two cards, or which card, where you're going to put that, that point or two of damage. But um, it's just interacting in combat, and bam, everything it blocks. Yeah. Or It also means that these cards, both the Thicket Basilisk and the Cockatrice, are more useful for combat tricks than actually as offensive threats. Right, that they don't, they just can't inflict very much damage very quickly, and so. Oh yeah, a, a five mana two four flyer is is way below curve in the context of alpha, especially given the preponderance of strong five mana creatures that we alluded to many right. times before. Which means that the designers of the game are telling you, we want you to pair yeah. this with other cards. We want you to yeah. use lure. We want you to use these other effects to make the most of this. You know, it's interesting, Steve. Um, this also your example so your comments there are totally true i believe that cockatrice and um thicket basilisk can trace their long lineage into the fight mechanic that was introduced several years ago now but it was introduced primarily in green 
because that is modeled after the notion that you're in green specifically your creatures are your removal spells right yeah your creatures are on average bigger than your opponents and if you get them in combat then they should win cockatrice's wins and thicket basilisk by extension win by not being bigger but just by having this you know gorgon like ability (laughs) and and i just think that that's closely connected to fight in the long term mechanically for green carrying through that that feeling of my creatures are just going to kill yours regardless of size basically again they're so simple in concept but so nuanced in their possibilities i love it yeah it's also worth noting that cockatrice is a rare uh i think they were pretty strong yeah yeah, strongly afraid of recurring removal potential right either recurring or one shot your whole team with (laughs) the lure example on basilisk i think they were probably a little afraid of that it's also worth noting that in the art, another Dan Frazier piece, I don't think it was Dan's goal exactly, but it looks like this thing is on concrete. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like tur- yeah. asphalt. It's sitting on asphalt. Yeah, that's, that's bizarre. I'm worried about this con- this cockatrice sitting in a parking lot somewhere. <laughs> I, I, I want it to be safe. All right. Next up, we have Consecrate Land. A single white mana gets you an enchant land that says all enchantments on target land are destroyed. Land cannot be destroyed or further enchanted until consecrate land has been destroyed. <laughs> so, um, so, by the way, this target this targets the land. You were we were yeah. talking about that earlier. So does evil presence. So targeting yeah, clearly so, applies to both creatures and lands. Definitely, and this one has some interesting implications just from a, a wording standpoint, right? So it. It's interesting to me that it uses, for the enchantments that are on the land when you cast this, it says they are destroyed, whereas another card might have said that they are discarded, Yeah. right? Yeah. So this reinforces the syntactic ambiguity between discarding and destroying, yeah. right? Um, and also, so the, the, the oracle text today says, enchanted land has indestructible and can't be enchanted by other auras. And <laughs> that other auras line uh, calls into the into relief the fact that this card as printed in alpha uh should destroy it yes <laughs> it says all yep. enchantments on target land are destroyed <laughs> and so similar to the wards yes. especially white ward right this is another example of a card oh that doesn't function God. properly in alpha that's awesome this one's at least slightly better in that you could use it to destroy another nefarious aura like cursed land or something so unlike a ward it has at least some tiny application <laughs> but the simple truth is is the al- this is another card where the alpha wording uh, just undermines itself yeah that's a great i love you for pointing that out um a couple things i just wanted to note about this so i actually had this back in like 1995 uh in in if not late 94 in my type one well yes it was probably just when type one was created sideboard of my blue white control yeah. deck kevin because to protect your library? Over over half of the people I played with were on super land destruction decks. Oh, So okay. I would play opponents who played with Sinkhole, Stone Rain, uh, Ice Storm, you know, other people who yep. played Armageddon decks. Uh, you know, just, there was a lot of Black Vise land destruction decks yeah. in my specific metagame. I probably should have just played more land in my sideboard, but but I really was sick of I was in strip mine of course. I was really sick of my first turn tundra just getting always destroyed. So I I yeah. wanted to play a consecrate land just to get it 
just to get an anchor and a toehold in the game. You know, and often it was it really made the difference. Now, when old school became a thing, I picked up four consecrate lands because I thought, my God, there's going to be so much land destruction, especially under eternal central rules where strip mine is so prevalent. And I tried and it was terrible. So I don't know whether it was just like a very peculiar, like super heavy land destruction metagame where I found it to be useful or it was just, um, I was just wrong. Probably a bit of both. <laughs> but, um, but what I wanted to point out about this card, so so I have a lot of historical experience playing with it. And I would get my play my Beta Tundra, play Consecrate Land to kind of anchor myself into the game. I only had one Ivory Tower because it was quickly restricted, so I couldn't, you know, do that. I needed to find ways around Black Vies. Um, the the other thing that's notable about this card is if Alpha League ever permits sideboards, this card can be very useful, Kevin, against the Psychic Venom deck. Which is very annoying ah. in Alpha because it uses Ices and Power Sinks and Psychic Venom. Even at the Wizards tournament, where there's no restrictions, Magnus de Laval like talked a lot about the Psychic Venom deck. Just it's you know it's annoying. Like you can put a bunch of Psychic <laughs> Venoms and Icy your like two Psychic Venoms on a land. Your opponent Icy's it a couple turns. You're dead. Just dead. Uh, that's a that's a clock that's akin to a Juggernaut, and it casts Cost two. two mana times two, yeah. right? Yeah, it costs the same as a Juggernaut, spread out over two turns, which means it inherently comes down faster. And, and you can play the first Psychic Venom on your second turn before they've done anything with that first and they land. Have to, and they are well, probably going to tap it, so self-inflict, yeah. Psychic Venom is, exactly. is a huge menace in, old, in, in Alpha. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. It's a, it's a really <laughs> annoying card. This card will destroy yeah. all the Psychic Venoms. Yeah, pretty strong. Not to mention it can destroy, you know, not that this card is seed a lot, but Cursed Land, you know, um, it can protect your land from an Armageddon or a volcanic, I guess, a volcanic eruption if you put it on a mountain or a plateau, <laughs> um, <laughs> right? So so there, and uh, I don't know how, I don't I assume it doesn't save you from a balance, but I don't know. Um, That's an interesting question. Um, that, so that wording here says cannot be destroyed <laughs> uh, but balance doesn't destroy does it i don't think does, so i forget we, we reviewed balance already and i've already forgotten <laughs> balance yeah so the alpha balance for review says uh whichever player has more lands in play must discard enough <laughs> yeah. lands yeah so here's the discard versus destroy problem so if you have a card that says protects from destruction is discard still happen who knows, right? <laughs> yep, who knows. But they're they're using different mechanics, balance and consecrate land are, so it's up to you. it's up to the viewer, I guess, what they think. <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> so Steve, this card was reprinted in the special time shifted set in Time Spiral. Oh, yeah. In the same art too. Yeah. That's right. Uh same art as I guess uh, maybe a little bit of a it's a little generous, I would say, because they those time spiral those time shifted cards they um, really punched up the art in the cases where they used the original or they used the original art. Meaning, if you look at this Jeff Mangus art in in ABU and then compare it to the time spiral one, it almost looks like a different piece of art. They punched up the colors a whole bunch and sharpened the lines. Huh. And given Jeff Mangus's art style, the practical effect of that is it looks like a comic book in Time Spiral, 
and much less like the 70s era <laughs> watercolor. It's not actually watercolor, awesome. but the watercolor evocative piece yeah. you know, that Jeff painted. Looks so different. And so... Yeah. I know. I, I would argue that it is it, almost a different piece of art at that point. It really point. is. That that kind of blurry, faded background is punched up, so it's so vivid. It has yeah. sharp lines, no, too, I which lo- is not Jeff's It was much suit. more of like a Frazetta, Segrelis background, and now it's more like a, I don't know, it's weird. It's weird. Good point. <laughs> yeah. And there's one other thing that I want to point to on that front, and I, I have to do a little bit of validation here to confirm it before I say it all completely. But yeah, so Consecrate Land is an ABU card that was then not printed and revised. So there's a number of cards that meet that description. Uh, many of them are reserved. Are you thinking it was once on of- the reserve list and then removed? No, 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 not at all. My point is simply that this is the only card. I'm, I'm double checking with the, the Time Spiral uh, list right now. Yeah, this is the only card that has demonstrated this exact reprint pattern, which is alpha, <laughs> beta, unlimited, and then it was in time spiral, and that's, that's it. That's awesome. That is its only wait, other wait, reprint wait. is it, on that time spiral that's purple That's not sheet. true of Psychic Sonic Blast? Psionic Blast has had other reprints. It was uh, the player rewards card. Oh, okay. Got yeah. It. And it was online, too. That's the other thing, is that Consecrate Land, I think, is not even online. By the way, I like how they actually gave... No, it's not online, either. <laughs> They gave it's not on Magic Online. They gave, they gave it the it land indestructibility, the keyword mechanic in Time Spiral. Oh yeah, yep, that's right. Enchanted land is indestructible, and obviously that's the only printing with that verbiage, of course. Yeah. <laughs> the only paper printing, yeah. So, so Consecrate Land has lots of fun things about it, but one noteworthy piece of trivia is it is the only card to be reprinted in ABU and then Time Spiral. Time spiral. Yeah. That's and, and that's and that is its only other printing. All so there are there are twelve other cards, mind you, that were in ABU that were reprinted in that time spiral sheet. But the other twelve cards have been reprinted otherwise too. You hit on the closest other example, which is Psionic Blast, which hasn't been in another booster product, but was reprinted in the player rewards card in a textless well, version. Well, no one wants to get a player rewards of Consecrate Land, I'll tell you that right now. So, so that's why <laughs> I'm right there with you. Um, that is a niche audience right there. I'm here to tell you. <laughs> um, I just wanted to point out uh, before we wrap on this card that the last two cards we reviewed, both under contemporary wording, would have either close to or would include a new key a keyword. You know. Ah, yeah, that's that's noteworthy too. The the foundation of Alpha continues here, right? So this is not. I would not say that this card is the Genesis of indestructible no. by any stretch, <laughs> but it's it's one of several in the alpha context that contribute to the concept of indestructibility yeah. in the long run. Yeah, it's yeah. it's notable to me that I never back in the day, at least, don't recall thinking about this card in terms of destroying enchantments on it. I 100% was just trying to protect myself from strip mines to sinkhole. <laughs> but in <laughs> yeah. Alpha League, the context would be primarily protecting it from psychic, destroying psychic venoms. <laughs> yeah. Just pretty yeah. funny. Stay tuned for more thrilling limited edition adventures in the next part of our episode 100 spectacular on so many insane plays. Ha, 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 ha.